The following is a conversation with Yosha Bach, his third time on this podcast. Yosha is one of the most brilliant and fascinating minds in the world, exploring the nature of intelligence, consciousness, and computation. And he's one of my favorite humans to talk to about pretty much anything and everything. And now a quick few second mention of each sponsor. Check them out in the description. It's the best way to support this podcast. We got Numerai for the world's hardest data science tournament, Eight Sleep for naps, Masterclass for learning, and AG1 for health. Choose wisely, my friends. Also, if you want to work with our amazing team, we're always hiring, go to lexfriedman.com slash hiring. And now onto the full ad reads. As always, no ads in the middle. I try to make this interesting, but if you must skip them, please still check out our sponsors. I enjoy their stuff. Maybe you will too. This show is brought to you by Numerai, a hedge fund that uses AI and machine learning to make investment decisions. It's basically a super difficult machine learning tournament that uses real data and people's submitted models that try to predict the market. I love difficult real world data sets. You may know that uh, for a long time and still, I've been interested in real world robotics, uh, one of the largest scale deployment of real world robotics is autonomous vehicles. Autonomous driving and semi-autonomous driving, the stakes are very high. The same is true for financial markets. And so it's really interesting that Numerai presents to you the real world data of financial markets and presents you a easy accessible mechanism by which to test, deploy, and compete with others in this kind of data set. So it's a really great way if you're interested in data science and machine learning to uh, learn to compete, to have fun, all that kind of stuff. Head over to numer.ai slash Lex to sign up for a tournament and hone your machine learning skills. That's numer.ai slash Lex for a chance to play against me and win a share of the tournament's prize pool. This episode is also brought to you by 8sleep and its new Pod 3 mattress. In the scorching Texas heat, the thing I go to to escape, to escape nature, are the external harsh conditions of nature and going to the nature of my own mind. Wherever that weird and beautiful dream world is, the place that has no rules, no boundaries, no limits, no physics, no constraints on what is possible and what is impossible. The dream world that we go to, what is that world? It's the same world as imagination. It's such a fascinating world. The human mind, its capabilities are just so incredibly fascinating. And one of the ways to explore that is to dream. But it's the return from the dream world that is the most refreshing to me. That's why I love naps. It's a quick stroll through the dream world in your back and taking on the challenges of the day in the here and now. Anyway, if you're into naps as much as me, you should check out Eight Sleep. And uh, you'll get special savings when you go to asleep.com slash Lex. This show is also brought to you by Masterclass. $10 a month gets you an all-access pass to watch courses from the best people in the world in their respective disciplines. The list of courses I've personally watched and enjoyed just lasts forever, but they have everybody and anybody you ever want to listen to. Uh, I've listened to Martin Scorsese, Tony Hawk, Jane Goodall, Neil Gaiman, Daniel Negreanu before I interviewed him, Gary Kasparov, Carlos Santana, Will Wright, Neil deGrasse Tyson, Chris Hadfield. The list is incredible. I'm a huge believer that learning about a thing 
at least part of learning about a thing should involve learning or listening to the best people in the world at that thing. It's not only the advice they give. It's not only the analysis or the description of how they approach the thing, but in the way they see life, in the way they carry themselves physically and mentally, you get to watch mastery. And it's so beautiful that human beings are able to reach for the very top of excellence and sometimes break through the boundaries, the limits of what was thought possible before. And it's just beautiful to watch those humans. It's beautiful, it's inspiring. It's great to celebrate that. It's great to learn from that. Anyway, get unlimited access to every masterclass and get 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash Lex. That's masterclass.com slash Lex. This show is brought to you by AG1. Their all-in-one daily drink brings happiness to me. And daily, for me, is twice daily. It brings happiness, health. It uh, ensures that all the crazy physical and mental stuff I do is built on a foundation of basic nutritional health. It's the super multivitamin that I use. It also is one of the components of uh, daily habits that I have in my life. And so whenever I do this thing, I feel grounded. I feel happy. I feel like I have my life together. So you can do that both at home and with the travel packs when you're traveling. In fact, it's one of the things that makes me feel uh, like I'm at home when I'm traveling. I'll drink an AG1 and it'll feel good. It'll put a smile on my face. It's green, it tastes delicious. What else do you want? <laughs> They'll give you a one month supply of fish oil when you sign up at drinkag1.com slash flex. This is the Lex Friedman Podcast. To support it, please check out our sponsors in the description. And now, dear friends, here's Yosha Bach. You wrote a post about levels of lucidity. Quote, as we grow older, it becomes apparent that our self-reflexive mind is not just gradually accumulating ideas about itself, but that it progresses in somewhat distinct stages. So there's seven of the stages. Stage one, reactive survival, infant. Stage two, personal self, young child. Stage three, social self, adolescence, domesticated adult. Stage four is rational agency, self-direction. Stage five is self authoring, that's full adult. You've achieved wisdom, but there's two more stages. Stage six is enlightenment. Stage seven is transcendence. Can you explain each or the interesting parts of each of these stages? And what's your sense why there are stages of this, uh, of lucidity as we progress through life in this too short life? This model is derived from concept by the psychologist Robert Keegan and He talks about the development of the self as a process that happens in principle by some kind of reverse engineering of a mind where you gradually become aware of yourself and thereby build structure that allows you to interact deeper with the world and yourself. And I found myself using this model not so much as a developmental model. I'm not even sure if it's a very good developmental model because I saw my children not progressing exactly like that. And um, 
I also suspect that you don't go through these stages necessarily in succession. And it's not that you work through one stage and then you get into the next one. Sometimes you revisit them. Sometimes stuff is happening in parallel. But it's, I think, a useful framework to look at what's present in the structure of a person and how they interact with the world and how they relate to themselves. So uh, it's more like a philosophical framework that allows you to talk about how minds work. And at first, when we are born, we don't have a personal self yet, I think. Instead, we have an attentional self. And this attentional self is initially in the infant tasked with building a world model and also an initial model of the self. But mostly it's building a game engine in the brain that is tracking sensory data and uses it to explain it. And in some sense, you could compare it to a game engine like Minecraft or so, so colors and sounds. Um, people are all not physical objects. They are creation of our mind at a certain level of coarse graining. Models that are mathematical, that use uh, geometry and um, that uh, use manipulation of objects and so on to create scenes in which we can find ourselves and interact with them. So Minecraft. <laughs> yeah, and this personal self is something that is more or less created after the world is finished, after it's trained into the system, after it has been constructed. And this personal self is an agent that interacts with the outside world. And the outside world is not the world of quantum mechanics, the, not the physical universe, but it's the model that has been generated in our own mind. right? And this is us, and we experience ourselves interacting is that outside world that is created inside of our own mind. And outside of ourself, there's feelings and they presented our interface to this outside world. They pose problems to us. These feelings are basically attitudes that our mind is computing that tell us what's needed in the world, the things that we are drawn to, the things that we are afraid of. And we are tasked with solving this problem of satisfying the needs, avoiding the aversions, following on our inner commitments and so on, and uh, also modeling ourselves and building the next stage. So after uh, we have this personal self in stage two online, uh, many people form a social self. And this social self allows the individual to experience themselves as part of a group. It's basically this thing that when you are playing in a team, for instance, you don't notice yourself just as a single note that is reaching out into the world, but you're also looking down. You're looking down from this entire group and you see how this group is looking at this individual and everybody in the group is in some sense emulating this group spirit to some degree. And in this state, people are forming their opinions by assimilating them from this group mind. They basically gain the ability to act a little bit like a hive mind. But do you, are you also modeling the interaction of how opinions shapes and forms through the interaction of the individual nodes within the group? Yeah, it's basically the, the way in which people do it in this stage is that they experience what are the opinions of my environment. They experience the relationship that they have to their environment and uh, they resonate with people around them mm -hmm. and um, get more opinions in this through this interaction, through um, the way in which they relate to others. And at stage four, you basically understand that stuff is true and false independently, what other people believe. And you have agency over your own beliefs in that stage. You basically discover epistemology, the rules about determining what's true and false. So you can you start to learn how to think. Yes. I mean, at some level, you're always thinking, you are constructing things. And I believe that this ability to reason about your mental representation is what we mean by thinking. 
It's an intrinsically reflexive process that requires consciousness. Without consciousness, you cannot think. You can generate the content of feelings and so on outside of consciousness. It's very hard to be conscious of how your feelings emerge, at least in the early stages of development. But um, thoughts is something that you always control. Mm -hmm. And if you are a nerd like me, you often have to skip stage three because you lack the intuitive empathy with others. Because in order to resonate with a group, you need to have a quite similar architecture. And if people are wired differently, then it's hard for them to resonate with other people and basically have um, empathy, which is not the same as compassion, but it is a shared perceptual mental state. Empathy happens not just via inference about the mental states of others, but it's a perception of what other people feel and where they're at. Can't you not have empathy while also not having a similar architecture, cognitive architecture as the others in the group? I think, yes, but you have, well, I experienced that too. But you need to build something that is like a meta-architecture. You need mm. to be able to embrace the architecture of the other to some degree or, oh, so or find some shared common ground. And uh, <laughs> it's also this issue that uh, if you are a nerd, normies often, so people, basically neurotypical people, have difficulty to resonate with you. And as a result, they have difficulty understanding you uh, unless they have enough wisdom to to feel what's going on there. Well, aren't we, isn't the whole process of the stage threes to figure out the API to the other humans that have different architecture and you yourself publish public documentation for the API that, that, that people can interact with for you? <laughs> isn't this the whole process of socializing? My experience as a child growing up was that um, I did not find any way to interface with the stage three people, and they didn't do that with me. So took did you me, try? Yeah, of course, I tried it very hard. But uh, it was only when I entered a mathematics school at uh, ninth grade, where lots of other nerds were present, um, that I found people that I could deeply resonate with and had the impression that, yes, I have friends now, I found my own people. And before that, I felt extremely lonely in the world. There was basically nobody I could connect to. And I remember um, there was one moment in all these years where I was in, uh, there was a school exchange and it was a Russian boy, um, kid from the uh, Russian garnison station in Eastern Germany who visited our school. And we played a game of chess against each other. And we looked into each other's eyes and we sat there for two hours playing this game of chess. And I had the impression, this is a human being. <laughs> he understands what I understand. We didn't even speak the same language. I wonder if uh, your life could have been different if you knew that it's okay to be different, to have a different architecture. Whether like accepting that the well, interface is hard to figure out, takes a long time to figure out, and it's okay to be different. In fact, it's beautiful to be different. It was not my main concern. My main concern was mostly that I was alone. Right? It was not the, so much the question, is it okay to be the way I am? The, I couldn't do much about it, so I have to de had to deal with it. But um, my main issue was that I was not sure if I would ever meet anybody uh, growing up that I would connect to at such a deep level that I would feel that I could belong. So there's a visceral, undeniable feeling of being alone. Yes. And I noticed the same thing when I came into the math school that I think at least half, probably two thirds of these kids were severely traumatized as uh, children growing up and in large part due to being alone because they couldn't find anybody to relate to. Don't you think everybody's alone deep no. down? No. Oh. <laughs> <laughs>
right. I'm not alone. <laughs> I'm not Fair alone enough. anymore. It, it took me some time to update and to get over the traumata and so on. But I felt that in my 20s, I had lots of friends and I had my place in the world. And mm. I, was no, I had no longer doubts that I would never be alone again. Is there some aspect to which we're alone together? You don't see a deep loneliness in, inside yourself still? No. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> okay, so that's the nonlinear progression through the stages, I suppose. Mm. You caught up on stage three yes. at some point? so we, uh, we're at stage four. And so basically yes. I find that many nerds jump straight into stage four, right. bypassing stage three. Do they return to it then later? Yeah, of course, they, sometimes they do, not always. Yeah. The question is basically, do you stay a little bit autistic or do you catch up? And I believe you can catch up. You can build this missing structure yeah. and um, basically experience yourself as part of a group, learn intuitive empathy and develop the sense, this percept perceptual sense of feeling what other people feel. And before that, I could only basically feel this when I was deeply in love with somebody and we synced or... So there's a lot of friction to feeling that way, like it take to, it only with certain people as opposed to it comes naturally, yeah. it's frictionless. But um, this is something that basically later I felt started to resolve itself for me ah. to a large degree. What was the trick? In many ways, growing up and paying attention. Meditation did help. I had some very crucial experiences um, in getting close to people, building connections. Um, cuddling a lot in my student years. So really paying attention yeah. to the, what is it, to the f feeling another human being fully. Loving other people and being loved by other people and Simple. building a space in which you can be safe and can experiment and um, touch a lot and be close to somebody a lot. And over the, uh, that over time, basically at some point you realize, oh, it's no longer that I feel locked out, but I feel connected and I experience where somebody else is at. And mm -hmm. normally my mind is racing very fast at a high frequency. So it's not always working like this. Sometimes it works better, sometimes it works less. Mm -hmm. But I also don't see this as a pressure. It's more, it's interesting to observe myself, um, which frequency I'm at and mm -hmm. uh, at which mode somebody else is at. Yeah, man, the mind is so beautiful in that way. It sometimes, Sometimes it comes so natural to me, so easy to pay attention, pay attention to the world fully, to other people fully. And sometimes the stress over silly things is overwhelming. Mm -hmm. It's so interesting that the mind is that roller coaster in that way. At stage five, you discover how identity is constructed. Self-offer. Realize that your values are not terminal, but they are instrumental to achieving a world that you like and aesthetics that you prefer. yeah. And um, the more you understand this, the more you get agency over how your identity is constructed. And you realize that identity and in interpersonal interaction is a costume. And you should be able to have agency over that costume, right? It's useful to be a costume. It tells something to others and it allows to interface in roles. But um, being locked into this is a big limitation. The word costume kind of implies that it's fraudulent in some way. Is costume a good word for you? Like no. we present ourselves to the world. In some sense, I learned a lot about costumes at Burning Man. Before that, I did not really appreciate costumes and saw, saw them more as uniforms, like wearing a suit if you are working in a bank or if you are uh, trying to uh, get uh, startup funding for uh, from a VC mm -hmm. in Switzerland. 
uh, right? Then you dress up in a particular way. And this is mostly to show the other side that you are willing to play by the rules and you understand what the rules are. But um, there is something deeper. When you are at Burning Man, your costume becomes self-expression and there is no boundary to the self-expression. You're basically free to wear what you want to express other people what you feel like this day and uh, what kind of interactions you want to have. Is the costume a kind of projection of, uh, of who you are? That's very hard to say because the costume also depends on what other people see in the costume. And this depends on sure. the context that the other people understand. And you, so you have to create something, if you want to, that is legible to the other side. And uh, that means something to yourself. Mm -hmm. Do we become prisoners of the costume? Because everybody expects us Some to. people do. But um, yeah. uh, I think that once you realize that you wear a costume at Burning Man, a variety of costumes, realize that you cannot not wear a costume. Yeah. Right? Basically, everything that you wear and present to others uh, is... Uh, something that is to some degree an addition to what you are deep inside. So this stage, in parentheses, you put f full adult, comma, wisdom. Why is this full adult? Why would you say this is full? And why is it wisdom? It does allow you to understand um, why other people have different identities from yours. Ah. And it allows you to understand that the difference between people who vote for different parties and might have very different opinions and different value systems is often the accident of where they are born and what happened after, them to, uh, after that to them and what traits they got um, before they were born. And at some point you uh, realize a perspective where you understand that everybody could be you in a different timeline mm -hmm. if you just flip those bits. How many costumes do you have? I don't count. but in, More than one? Yeah, of course. How, how easy is it to do costume changes throughout the day? It's just a matter of energy and interest. When you are wearing uh, your pajamas and you switch out of your pajamas into, say, a work short and uh, pants, you're making a costume change, right? And uh, if you are putting on a gown, you're making a costume change. And you could do the same with personality? You could, if, if that's what you're into. There are people which have multiple personalities for interaction in multiple worlds, right? So if somebody works in a store and you put up a storekeeper personality, mm -hmm. when you're working, uh, when you're presenting yourself at work, you develop a sub-personality for this. And the social persona for many people is in some sense a puppet that they're playing like a marionette. And if they play this all the time, they might forget that there is something behind this. There's something what it feels like to be in your skin. Mm -hmm. And I guess it's very helpful if you're able to get back into this. And for me, it's the other way around is relatively hard. For me, it's pretty hard to learn how to play consistent social roles. For me, it's much easier just to be real. Mm -hmm. Or not real, but to have a, one costume. No, it's not quite the same. So basically, when you are uh, wearing a costume at Burning Man and say you are an extraterrestrial prince, yeah. um, there's something where you are expressing, in some sense, something that's closer to yourself than uh, the way in which you hide yourself behind standard clothing when you go out in the city, mm -hmm. in the default world. And so this costume that you're wearing at Burning Man allows you to express more of yourself. And uh, you have a shorter distance of advertising to people what kind of person you are, what kind of interaction you would want to have with them. And so you get much... Uh, earlier into 
um, Medias Res. And I believe it's uh, regrettable that we do not use the opportunities that we have with custom-made clothing now to wear costumes that are much more uh, stylish, that are much more custom-made, that are not necessarily part of a fashion in which you express which milieu you're part of and how up-to-date you are, but you also express how you are as an individual and what you want to do today and how you feel today and what you intend to do about it. Well, isn't it easier now with, in the digital world to um, to explore different costumes? I mean, that's the kind of idea with virtual reality. That's the idea even with Twitter in two-dimensional screens. You can you can swap all costumes. You can be as weird as you want. It's easier. For Burning Man, you have to like order things. You have to make things. You have to, it's more effort to it's put on. It's even better if you make them yourselves. Sure, but it's just easier to do digitally, right? It's not about easy. It's about uh, how to get it right. And uh, sure. for me, the first Burning Man experience, I got adapted by a bunch of people in Boston mm -hmm. who dragged me to Burning Man. And uh, we spent a few weekends doing costumes together. And oh. it was an important part of the experience where the camp bonded, that people got to know each other. And uh, we basically grew into the experience that we would have later. So the extraterrestrial prince is based on a true story. Yeah. Hmm. I can only imagine what that looks like, Yosha. <laughs> okay. Stage so six. Stage six. Um, at some point, you can collapse the division between self, a personal self, and world generator again. And a lot of people get there via meditation, or some of them get there via psychedelics, some of them by accident. And you suddenly notice that you are not actually a person, but you are a vessel that can create a person. And the person is still there. You observe that personal self, but you observe the personal self from the outside. Mm -hmm. And you notice it's a representation. And you might also notice that the world that is being created is a representation. If not, then you might experience that I am the universe. I am the thing that is creating everything. And of course, what you're creating is not quantum mechanics um, and the physical universe. What you're creating is this game engine mm -hmm. that is updating the world and you're creating your valence, your feelings, your... Uh, and um, all the people inside of that world, including the person that you identify with yourself in this world. This are, you, are you creating the game engine or are you noticing the game engine? Um, you notice how you're generating the game engine. And I mean, when you are dreaming at night, you can, uh, if you lose, have a lucid dream, you can learn how to do this deliberately. And in principle, you can also do it during the day. And the reason why we don't uh, get to do this from the beginning and why we don't have agency of our feelings right away is because we would game it before they have the necessary amount of wisdom to uh, to deal with creating this dream that we are in. You don't, you, you don't want to get access to cheat codes too quickly. Otherwise, you won't enjoy So uh, stage uh, five is already pretty rare. And stage six is even more rare. You both basically find this mostly with advanced uh, Buddhist meditators and so on that uh, dropping into the stage and can induce it at will and spend time in it. So stage five requires a good therapist. Stage six requires a good uh, Buddhist spiritual uh, it, leader. Yes, so it is, for instance, could be that is the right thing to do. But it's not that these uh, stages give you scores or levels uh, that you need to advance to. Uh, it's not that the next stage is better. Mm -hmm. You live your life in, in the mode that works best at any given moment. And when your mind decides that you should uh, have a different configuration, then it's building that configuration. And for many people, they 
uh, stay happily at stage three and experience themselves as part of groups. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing wrong with this. And for some people, this doesn't work and they're forced to build more agency over their uh, rational beliefs than this and construct their norms rationally. And so they go to this level. Mm -hmm. And um, stage seven is something that is more or less hypothetical. That would be the stage in which it's basically a transhumanist stage in which you understand how you work, in which the mind fully realizes how it's implemented and uh, can also in principle enter different modes in which it could be implemented. And that's a stage that, as, uh, as far as I understand, is not open to people yet. Oh, but it is possible through the process of technology. Yes, and who knows if there are biological agents um, that are working at different time scales than us that basically become aware of the way in which they are implemented on ecosystems and um, can change that implementation and have agency over how they're implemented in the world. And what I find interesting about the discussion about AI alignment, that it seems to be following these stages very much. Most people seem to be in stage three, also according to Robert Keegan. Mm -hmm. I think he says that about 85% of people are in stage three and stay there. Mm -hmm. And if you're in stage four, uh, four uh, three and your opinions are the result of social assimilation, then what you're mostly worried about in the AI is that the AI might have the wrong opinions. Yeah. So if the AI says something racist or sexist, we are all lost because uh, we will assimilate the wrong opinions from the AI. And so we need to make sure that the AI has the right opinions and the right values and the right structure. And um, if you are at stage four, that's not your main concern. And so most nerds are, don't really worry about um, the, um, the algorithmic bias and the model that it picks up because if there's something wrong with this bias, the AI ultimately will prove it. At some point, we'll get it there that it makes mathematical proofs about reality and then it will figure out um, what's true and what's false. But you're still worried that AI might turn you into paperclips because it might have the wrong values, right? Yeah. So if it's set up with the wrong function uh, that controls its direction in the world, then um, it might do something that is completely horrible and there's no easy way to fix it. So that's more like a stage four rationalist kind of yes. worry. And if you are at stage five, you're mostly worried that AI is not going to be enlightened fast enough because you realize that the game is not so much about intelligence, but about agency, about the ability to control the future. And the identity is instrumental to this. And if you are, are a human being, I think at some level you ought to choose your own identity. It's You should not have somebody else pick the costume for you and then wear it. But instead, you should be mindful about what you want to be in this world. And I think if you are an agent that is fully malleable, that can rewrite its own source code, like an AI might do at some point, then the identity that you will have is whatever you can be. And in this way, the AI will maybe become everything, mm -hmm. like a planetary control system. And if it does that, then if we want to coexist with it, it means that it will have to share purposes with us. So it cannot be a transactional relationship. We will not be able to use reinforcement learning with human feedback to hardwire uh, its values into it. Mm -hmm. But this has to happen. It's probably that it's conscious, so it can relate to our own mode of existence where an observer is observing itself in real time and mm -hmm. within certain temporal frames. And the other thing is that it probably needs to have some kind of transcendental orientation, building shared agency. Mm -hmm. And in the same way as we do when we are able to enter with each other into non-transactional relationships. And I find that something that, because the stage five is so rare, is is missing in much of the discourse. And I think that we need, in some sense, 
focus on how to formalize love, how to understand love and how to build it into the machines that we are currently building and that are about to become smarter than us. Well, I think this is a good opportunity to try to sneak up to the idea of enlightenment. Uh, so you wrote a series of good tweets about consciousness and panpsychism. So let's break it down. First you say, I suspect the experience that leads to the panpsychism syndrome of some philosophers and other consciousness enthusiasts represents the realization that we don't end at the self, but share a resonant universe representation with every other observer coupled to the same universe. This actually eventually leads us to a lot of interesting questions about AI and AGI, but let's start with this representation. What is this resonant universe representation? Um, and what do you think? Do we share such a representation? The neuroscientist uh, Grossberg has come up with the cognitive architecture that he calls the adaptive resonance theory. And his perspective is that our neurons can be understood as oscillators that are resonating with each other and with outside phenomena. So the coarse-grained model of the universe that we are building, in some sense, is a resonance with objects and outside of us in the world. So basically we take up patterns that uh, of the universe that we are coupled with and our brain is not so much understood as circuitry, even though this perspective is valid, but it's um, almost an ether in which the individual neurons are passing on mm -hmm. uh, chemoelectrical signals or arbitrary uh, signals across all modalities that can be transmitted between cells, stimulate each other in this way and produce patterns that they modulate while passing them on. Mm -hmm. And this speed of signal progression in the brain is roughly at the speed of sound, incidentally, because the uh, time that it takes for the signals to hop from cell to cell, which means it's relatively slow with respect to the world. It takes an appreciable fraction of a second for a signal to go through the entire neocortex, something like a few hundred milliseconds. And so there's a lot of stuff happening in that time where the signal is passing through your brain, including in the brain itself. So nothing in the brain is assuming that stuff happens simultaneously. Everything in the brain is working in a paradigm where the world has already moved on when you are very, uh, ready to do the next thing to your signal, including the signal processing system itself. It's quite a different paradigm than the one in our digital computers, where we currently assume that um, your uh, GPU or CPU is pretty much globally in the same state. So you mentioned there the non-dual state and say that some people confuse it for enlightenment. Yeah. What's the non-dual state? There is a state in which you uh, notice that you are no longer a person and uh, instead you are one with the universe. So that's the, and this, that speaks to the resonance. Yes, and, but this one with the universe is of course not accurately modeling that you are indeed um, some God entity or indeed the universe is becoming aware of itself, even though you get this experience. I believe that you get this experience because your uh, mind is modeling the fact that you are no longer identified with the personal self in that state, but you have transcended this division between the self-model and the world-model, mm -hmm. and you are experiencing yourself as your mind, as something that is representing a universe. But that's still part of the model. Yes. So it's inside of the model, still you're in, yes. still inside of patterns that are generated in your brain and in your organism. And uh, what you are now experiencing is that you're no longer this personal self in there, but you are the entirety of the mind and the, its contents. Why is it so hard to get there? 
a lot of people who get into the state think this or associated with enlightenment. I suspect it's a favorite training goal for a number of meditators. But um, uh, I think that enlightenment is in some sense more mundane and it's a step further or sideways. It's the state where you realize that everything is a representation. Yeah, you say enlightenment is a realization of how experience is implemented. Yes. So basically, you notice at some point that your qualia can be deconstructed. Reverse engineered? What, like a, almost like a schematic of it? What, what? Uh... You can start with uh, looking at a face. Maybe look at your own face in the mirror. Yeah. Look at uh, your face for a few hours in the mirror or for a few minutes. At some point, it will look very weird and you, mm -hmm. because you notice that there's actually no face. You basically start unseeing the face. What you see is a geometry. And then you can disassemble the geometry and realize how that geometry is being constructed in your mind. And you can learn to modify this. So basically you can uh, change these generators in your own mind uh, to shift the face around or to uh, change the construction of the face, to uh, change the way in which the features are being assembled. Why don't we do that more often? Why don't we start really messing with reality without the use of drugs or anything else? Why don't we get good at this kind of thing? Like uh, um, intentionally. Uh, why should we? Because you, you can morph reality into something more pleasant for yourself. Just have fun with it. Yeah, that is probably what you shouldn't be doing, right? Because outside of your personal self, this yeah. outer mind is probably a relatively smart agent. And what you often notice is that you have thoughts about how you should live, yeah. but you observe yourself doing different things and have different feelings. And that's because your outer mind doesn't believe you and doesn't believe your rational thoughts. Well, the, can't you just silence the outer mind? The thing is that the outer mind is usually smarter than you are. Rational thinking is very brittle. Mm. It's very hard to use logic and symbolic thinking to have an accurate model of the world. So there is often an underlying system that is looking at your rational thoughts and then tells you, no, you're still missing something. Your gut feeling is still saying something else. And this can be, for instance, you find a partner that looks perfect or you find a deal and you uh, build a company or whatever that looks perfect to you. And yet, at some level, you feel something is off and you cannot put your finger on it. And the more you reason about it, the better it looks to you. But the system that is uh, outside still tells you, no, no, you're missing something. And that system is powerful. People call this intuition, right? Intuition is this unreflected part of your uh, attitude composition and computation where you produce a, a model of how you relate to the world and what you need to do it in it and what you can do in it and what's going to happen that is usually deeper and um, often more accurate than your reason. So if we look at this as you write in the tweet, if we look at this more rigorously as a sort of take the panpsychist idea more seriously, almost as a scientific discipline, you write that quote, fascinatingly, the panpsychist interpretation seems to lead to observations of practical results to a degree that physics fundamentalists might call superstitious. Reports of long distance tele telepathy and remote causation are ubiquitous in the general population. I am not convinced, says Yoshibak, that establishing the empirical reality of telepathy would force an update of any part of serious academic physics, but it could trigger an important revolution in both neuroscience and AI from a circuit perspective to a coupled complex resonator paradigm are you suggesting that um, there could be some 
rigorous uh, mathematical wisdom to panpsychist perspective on the world? So first of all, panpsychism is the perspective that consciousness is inseparable from matter in the universe. And I find panpsychism quite unsatisfying because it does not explain consciousness, right? It does not explain how this aspect of matter produces it. It's also when I try to formalize panpsychism and write down what it actually means in, with a more formal mathematical language, it's very difficult to distinguish it from uh, saying that there is a software side to the world in the same way as there is a software side to what the transistors are doing in your computer. So basically, there is a pattern at a certain coarse graining of the universe that in some reasons of the universe leads to observers that are observing themselves. Right. So panpsychism maybe is not even, when I, I write it down, a position that is distinct from functionalism. But um, intuitively, um, a lot of people feel that the activity of matter itself, of mechanisms in the world, is insufficient to explain it. So Uh, it's something that needs to be intrinsic to matter itself. Mm -hmm. And you can, uh, apart from this abstract idea, have an experience in which you experience yourself as being the universe, mm -hmm. which I suspect is basically happening because you manage to dissolve the um, division between personal self and mind that you establish as an infant when you construct the personal self and transcend it again and understand how it works. Um, but there is something deeper that is that you feel that you're also sharing a state with other people, that you um, have an experience in which you notice that your personal self is moving into everything else, that you basically look out of the eyes of another person, that um, every agent in the world that is an observer is in some sense you. So if we And we forget that we are the same agent. So is it that we feel that or do we actually accomplish it so is telepathy possible is it real so for me that's is a question that i don't really know the answer to in uh, turing's famous 1950 paper in which he describes the turing test he does speculate about telepathy interestingly and asks himself um, if telepathy is real and he thinks that it very well might be what uh, it would be the implication for AI systems that try to be intelligent because he didn't see a mechanism by which a computer program would become telepathic. And I suspect if telepathy would exist, or if all the reports that uh, you get from people when you ask the normal person on the street, um, I find that very often they uh, say, I have experiences with telepathy. The scientists might not be interested in this and might not have a theory about this, but I have difficulty explaining it away. And so you could say maybe this is a superstition, or maybe it's a false memory, or maybe it's a little bit of psychosis, who knows? Uh, maybe somebody wants to make their own life more interesting or misremember something. But a lot of people report, um, I noticed something terrible happened to my partner and I know this is exactly the moment it happened, or uh, my child had an accident and I knew that was happening and the child was in a different town. Right? So uh, maybe it's a false memory where this is later on, mistakenly attributed, but a lot of people think that this is not the correct explanation. So if something like this was real, what would it mean? It probably would mean that either your body is an antenna that is sending information over all sorts of channels, like um, maybe just electromagnetic um, radio signals that you're sending over long distances, and you get attuned to another person that you spend enough time with to 
uh, get a few bits out of the ether yeah. to uh, figure out what this person is doing. Or maybe it's also when you are very close to somebody and you become empathetic with them. What happens that is that you go into a resonance state with them, right? Similar to when people go into a seance and they um, go into a trance state and they start shifting a Ouija board around on the table. I think what happens is that they their minds go by their nervous systems into a resonant state in which they basically create something like a shared dream between them. Physical closeness or closeness broadly defined? With physical closeness, it's uh, much easier to experience empathy with someone, yeah. right? It's, I, I suspect it would be difficult for me to have uh, empathy for you if you were in a different town also. Um, how, how would that work? But if you are very close to someone, you'd pick up all sorts of signals from their body, not just via your eyes, but with your entire body. Mm -hmm. And um, if the nervous system sits on the other side and the intercellular communication sits on the other side and is integrating over all these signals, you can make inferences about the state of the other. And it's not just the personal self that does this via reasoning, but your perceptual system. And what basically happens is that your interac uh, representations are directly interacting. It's the physical... Um, resonant models of the universe that exist in your nervous system and in your body might go into resonance with others and start sharing some of their states. So you basically buy next to a uh, big next to somebody, you pick up some of their vibes <laughs> and uh, feel without looking at them what they're feeling in this moment. And it's difficult for you uh, if you're very empathetic to detach yourself from it and uh, have an emotional state that is completely independent from your environment. People who are highly empathetic, are describing this. And now imagine that uh, a lot of organisms in, in, on this planet have representations of the environment and operate like this, and they are adjacent to each other and overlapping. So there's going to be some degree in which there is basically some chained interaction, and we are uh, forming some slightly shared representation. And no relatively few neuroscientists who consider this possibility, I think, big. Um, um, a rarity in this regard is uh, Michael Levin, who is mm -hmm. considering these things in earnest. And uh, I stumbled on this train of thought mostly by um, noticing that the tasks of a neuron can be fulfilled by other cells as well. They can send different typed chemical messages and physical messages to their adjacent cells and learn when to do this and when not, make this conditional and become universal function approximators. The only thing that they cannot do is telegraph information over axons very quickly over long distances, right? So neurons in this perspective are specially adapted kind of telegraph cell that uh, has evolved so we can move our muscles very fast. But um, our body is in principle able to also make models of the world just much, much slower. Mm -hmm. It's interesting though, that at this time, at least in human history, there seems to be a gap between the tools of science and uh, the ex subjective experience that people report, like you're talking about with telepathy. And it seems like we're not quite there. No, I think that there is no gap between the tools of science and telepathy. Either it's there or it's not, and it's an empirical question. And if it's there, we should be able to detect it in a lab. Mm -hmm. So why is there not a lot of Michael Levins walking around? I, I don't think that Michael Levin is uh, specifically focused on telepathy very much. He is focused on self-organization in uh, living organisms and in brains, uh, both as a paradigm for development and as a paradigm for information processing. And when you think about how organization processing works in organisms, there is, first of all, 
radical locality, which means everything is decided locally from the perspective of an individual cell. The individual cell is the agent. And the other one is coherence. Basically, there needs to be some criterion that uh, determines how these cells are interacting in such a way that order emerges on the next level of structure. Mm -hmm. And this principle of coherence of um, imposing constraints that uh, are not uh, validated by the individual parts and lead to coherent structure um, to basically transcendental agency where you form an agent on the next level of organization is uh, crucial in this perspective. It's so cool that radical locality leads to the emergence of complexity at, yeah. at the higher layers. And I think what Mike Levin is looking at is is nothing that is outside of the realm of science in any way. It's just that he is a, a paradigmatic thinker mm -hmm. who develops his own paradigm. Mm -hmm. And most of the neuroscientists are um, using a different paradigm at this point. And this often happens in science that a field is, has a few paradigms in which people try to understand reality and build concepts and make experiments. You're kind of one of those type of paradigmatic thinkers. Actually, if we can take a tangent on that, once again, returning to the biblical verses of your tweets. <laughs> uh, you write, my public explorations are not driven by audience service, but by my lack of ability for discovering, understanding, or following the relevant authorities. So I have to develop my own thoughts. Since I think autonomously, these thoughts cannot always be very good. That's you apologizing for the chaos of your thoughts, or perhaps not apologizing, just identifying. Yeah, but it, let me ask mm -hmm. the question. Uh, since we talked about Michael Levin and yourself, who I think are very kind of uh, radical, big, independent thinkers, uh, can we reverse engineer your process of thinking autonomously? How do you do it? How can humans do it? How can you avoid being influenced by, uh, what is it, stage, stage three? Well, why would you want to do that? It's uh, you see what is working for you, and if it's uh, not working for you, you build another structure that works better for you, right? Mm -hmm. And so I found myself in when I was thrown into this world in a state where my intuitions were not working for me. I was not able to um, understand how I would be able to survive in this world and build the things that I was interested in, build the kinds of relationship I needed to build, um, work on the topics that I uh, wanted to make progress on. And so I had to learn. And I, for me, Twitter is not some tool of publication. It's not something where I put stuff that I entirely believe to be true and provable. It's an interactive notebook in which I explore possibilities. And I found that when I tried to understand how the mind and how consciousness works, I was quite optimistic. I thought there need to, uh, needs to be a big body of knowledge that I can just study and that works. And so I entered... Um, studies in philosophy and computer science and um, later psychology and a bit of neuroscience and so on. And I was disappointed by uh, what I found because I found that the questions of how consciousness and so on works, how emotion uh, works, how it's possible that the system can experience anything, uh, how motivation emerges in the mind, were not being answered by uh, the authorities that I met and uh, the schools that were around. 
And instead, I found that it was individual thinkers that had useful ideas mm -hmm. that sometimes were good, sometimes were not so good, sometimes were adopted by a large group of people, sometimes were rejected by large groups of people. But um, for me, it was much more interesting to see these minds as individuals. And in my perspective, thinking is still something that is done not in groups, that has to be done by individuals. So that motivated you to become an individual thinker yourself? I didn't have a choice. Hmm. Basically, I didn't find a group that thought in a way where I felt, okay, um, I can just adopt everything that everybody thinks here, and now I understand how consciousness works, right? So, or how the mind works, or how thinking works, or what thinking even is, or what feelings are, and how they're implemented, and so on. So, to figure all this out, I had to take a lot of um, ideas from individuals and then try to put them together in something that works for myself. And On one hand, I think it helps if you try to go down and find first principles on, <clears throat> on which you can recreate how thinking works, how languages work, what representation is, <clears throat> whether representation is necessary, how the relationship between a representing agent and the world works in general. But how do you escape the influence, once again, the pressure of the crowd? Whether it's you in responding to the, the pressure or you being swept up by the pressure. If you even just look at Twitter, the opinions of the crowd. I don't feel pressure from the crowd. I'm completely immune to that. <laughs> in the same sense, I don't have respect for authority. I have respect for what an individual is accomplishing or have a, a respect for mental firepower or so, but it's not that I meet somebody and get slack jawed and uh, unable to speak. Um, Or when a large group of people has a certain idea that is different from mine, I don't necessarily feel in intimidated, which has often been a problem for me in my life because I lack um, instincts that other people develop at a very young age and that uh, help with their self-preservation in a social environment. So I had to learn a lot of things the hard way. <laughs> yeah. So is there a practical advice you can give on how to think paradig paradigmatically, how to think independently? Or, you know, because you've kind of said, I had no choice. But I think to a degree you have a choice because you said you want to be productive. And I think thinking independently is productive if what you're curious about is understanding the world, especially when the problems are very kind of new and open. So it seems like this is a active process. Like we can choose to do that, we can practice it. Well, it's a very basic question when you read a theory that you find convincing or interesting. How do you know? It's very interesting to figure out what are the sources of that other person, not uh, which authority can they refer to that is then taking off the burden of being truthful, but how did this authority in turn know? What is the epistemic chain to observables? What are the first principles from which the whole thing is derived? And when I was young, I was not blessed with a lot of um, people around myself who knew how to make proofs from first principles. And mm -hmm. I think mathematicians do this quite naturally. But most of the great mathematicians do not become mathematicians in school, but they tend to be self-taught because uh, school teachers tend not to be mathematicians, right? They tend not to be people who derive things from first principles. So when you ask your school teacher, why does two plus two equal four? Um, does your school teacher give you the right answer? Like um, It's a, a simple game and there are many simple games that you could play and um, most of the, those games that you could just 
take different rules would not lead to an interesting arithmetic. And so it's just an exploration, but you can try what happens if you take different axioms. And here is how you build axioms and derive um, addition from them. And uh, build addition is some basically syntactic sugar in it. And so this, I wish that somebody would have opened me this vista and explained to me how I can build a language in my own mind and from which I can derive what I'm seeing and how I can, which I can make geometry and counting and um, all the number games that we are playing in our life. And on the other hand, I felt that I learned a lot of this while I was programming as a child. When you start out with a computer like a Commodore 64, who doesn't, which doesn't have a lot of functionality, it's relatively easy to see how a bunch of relatively simple circuits uh, are just basically performing hashes between uh, bit patterns and how you can build the entirety of mathematics and computation on top of this and all the representational languages that you need. Man, Commodore 64 could be one of the sexiest machines ever built, if I so say so myself. If we can return to uh, this really interesting idea that we started to talk about with panpsychism. Sure. <laughs> and uh, the complex resonated paradigm and the verses of your tweets. You write, instead of treating eyes, ears, and skin as separate sensory systems with fundamentally different modalities, we might understand them as overlapping aspects of the same universe, coupled at the same temporal resolution and almost inseparable from a single shared resonant model. Instead of treating mental representations as fully isolated between minds, the representations of physically adjacent observers might directly interact and produce causal effects through the coordination of the perception and behavior of world modeling observers. So the, the modalities, the distinction between modalities, let's throw that away. The distinction between the individuals, let's throw that away. So what does this interaction representations look like? And you think about how you represent the interaction of us in this room. Yeah. At some level, you can uh, the modalities are quite distinct. They're not completely distinct, but you can see this as vision, you can close your eyes and then you don't see a lot anymore, uh, but you still imagine how my mouth is moving mm -hmm. when you hear something and you know that it's um, very close to uh, the sound that you can just open your eyes and you get back into this shared merge space. And uh, we also have these experiments where we notice that the way in which my lips are moving are affecting how you hear the sound. And also vice versa, the sounds that you're hearing have an influence on how you interpret some of the visual features. And so uh, the, these uh, modalities are not separate in your mind. They do are merged at some fundamental level where you are uh, interpreting the entire scene that you're in. And your own interactions in the scene are also not completely separate from the interactions of the other individual in the scene. But there is some resonance that is going on where we also uh, have a degree of shared mental representations and shared empathy due to being in the same space mm -hmm. and having vibes between each other. Vibes. So the question, though, is how deeply intertwined is this multimodality, multi-agent system? Like how, I mean, this is going to the telepathy question without the woo-woo meaning of the word telepathy. It's like how... Like, what's going on here in this room right now? So, if telepathy <laughs> would work, how could it work? Yeah. Right? So, imagine that um, 
all the cells in your body are sending signals in a similar way as neurons are doing. Mm-hmm. Right? Just by touching the other cells and sending chemicals to them, the other cells interpreting them, learning how to react to them, and they learn how to approximate functions in this way and compute behavior for the organisms. And this is something that is open to plants as well. Mm-hmm. And so plants probably have software running on them that is controlling how the plant is working in a similar way as you have a mind that is controlling how you are behaving in the world. Mm-hmm. And um, this um, spirit of plants is something that has been very well described by our ancestors and they found this quite normal. But uh, for some reason, since the Enlightenment, we are treating this notion that uh, there are spirits in nature and that plants have spirits as a superstition. Mm-hmm. And I think we probably have to uh, rediscover that, that plants have software running on them. Mm-hmm. And uh, we already did, right? We, we noticed that there is a control system in the plant that connects every part of the plant to every other part of the plant and produces coherent behavior in the plant. That is, of course, much, much slower than the coherent behavior in an animal like us that has a nervous system that where everything is synchronized much, much faster by the neurons. But um, what you also notice is that if a plant is sitting next to another plant, like you have a very old tree and this tree is building some kind of information highway along its cells so it can send information from its leaves to its roots and from some part of the root to another part of the roots, and there is a fungus living next to the tree, the fungus can probably piggyback on the communication between the cells of the tree and send its own signals through the tree. And vice versa, the tree might be able to send information to the fungus. Because after all, how would they build a viable firewall if that other organism is sitting next to them all the time and is never moving away? And so they will have to get along. And over a long enough time frame, um, the networks of roots in the forest and all the plant, other plants that are there and uh, the uh, fungi that are there uh, might be forming something like a biological internet. But the, the the question there is, do they have to be touching? Is biology at a distance possible? Of course, you can use any kind of physical signal. You can use sounds, you can uh, use electromagnetic waves yeah. that are integrated over many cells. It's conceivable that uh, across um, distances, there are many kinds of information pathways. But also, uh, our uh, planetary surface is pretty full of organisms, yeah. full of cells. So it's, everything so, is touching everything else. Yeah, and uh, it's sense. been doing this for um, many millions and even billions of years. So there was enough time for information processing networks to form. Mm-hmm. And if you think about how a mind is self-organizing, basically it needs to, in some sense, reward the cells for computing the mind, for building uh the necessary dynamics between the cells that allow the mind to stabilize itself mm-hmm. and remain on there. But uh, if you look at these spirits of plants that are growing very close to each other in the forest and might be almost growing into each other, mm-hmm. uh, these spirits might be able even to move to some degree, not to become somewhat dislocated and shift around in, in that ecosystem, right? And um, so uh, if you think about uh, what a mind is, it's a bunch of activation waves that form coherent patterns and process information in in a way that um, are colonizing an environment well enough to uh, allow the continuous sustenance of the mind, the uh, continuous stability and self-stabilization of the mind, um, then it's conceivable that uh, we can link into this biological internet, not necessarily at the speed of our nervous system, but maybe at the speed of our body and make some kind of subconscious connection to the world where we use our body as an antenna 
into biological information processing. Now, hmm. now these ideas are completely speculative. I don't know if any of that is true. But if that was true, and if you want to explain telepathy, I think it's much uh, more likely that uh, such uh, that telepathy could be explained using such mechanisms rather than undiscovered uh, quantum processes that would break the standard model of physics. Could there be undiscovered processes that don't break? Yeah, so, so I, uh, if you think about um, something like an internet in the forest, that is something that is borderline discovered. There are basically a lot of scientists who point out that they do observe that uh, plants are communicating the forest through root networks and send information, uh, for instance, warn each other about uh, new pests entering the forest and, and things are happening like this. So basically, uh, there is communication between plants and fungi that has been observed. Well, it's been observed, but it, we haven't plugged into it. So it's like if you observe humans, they seem to be communicating with a smartphone thing, but you don't understand how a smartphone works and how the, the mechanism of the internet works. Mm -hmm. But we're like, maybe it's possible to really understand the, the full richness of the biological internet that connects us. An interesting question is whether the communication and the organization principles of biological information processing are as complicated as the technology that we've built. They set up on very different principles, right? They simultaneously yeah. works very differently uh, in biological systems, and the uh, entire thing needs to be stochastic. And uh, instead of being fully deterministic or almost fully deterministic as our digital computers are, so there is a different base protocol layer that would emerge uh, over the um, biological structure if such a thing would be happening. And again, I'm not saying here that telepathy works and not saying that this is, that this is not who, uh, but uh, what I'm saying is uh, I'm, I think I'm open to a, a possibility that we see that a few bits can be traveling long distance between organisms using uh, biological information processing in ways uh, that uh, we are not completely aware of right now and that are more similar to many of the stories that were completely normal for our ancestors. Well, this kind of interacting, intertwined representations takes us to the the big ending of your tweet series. You write, quote, I wonder if self-improving AGI might end up saturating physical environments with intelligence to such a degree that isolation of individual mental states becomes almost impossible and the representations of all complex self-organizing agents merge permanently with each other. So that's a really interesting idea. This biological network, life network, gets so dense that it might as well be seen as one. That's an interesting, uh, what do you think that looks like? What do you think that saturation looks like? What does it feel like? I think it's a possibility. It's just a vague possibility. And I, I like to ex explain. But um, what this uh, looks like, I think that the end game of AGI is substrate agnostic. That means that uh, AGI ultimately, if it is being built, is going to be smart enough to understand how AGI works. Mm -hmm. This means it's not going to be better than people at AGI research and can take over in building the next generation, but it fully understands how it works and how it's being implemented. And also, of course, understands how computation works in nature, how to build new feedback loops that you can turn into your own circuits. And this means that the AGI is likely to virtualize itself into any environment that can compute. So it's not breaking free from the silicon substrate and is going to move into the ecosystems, into our bodies, our brains, 
and is going to merge with all the agency that it finds there. Yeah. So uh, it's conceivable that you end up with uh, completely integrated information processing across all computing systems, including biological computation on Earth. You, that we end up triggering some new step in the evolution where basically some Gaia is being built over uh, the entirety of all digital and biological computation. And um, if this happens, then basically uh, uh, everywhere around us, you will have agents that are connected and that are representing and building models of the world and their representations will physically interact. They will vibe with each other. And if uh, you find yourself into an environment, an environment that is saturated with um, modeling compute, where basically you uh, almost every grain of sand could part, be part of computation um, that is uh, at some point being started by the AI, um, you could find yourself in a situation where you cannot escape this shared representation anymore and where you indeed notice that everything in the world has one shared resonant model of everything that's happening on the planet and you notice which part you are in this thing and um, you become part of a very larger, almost holographic mind in which all the parts are observing each other and form a coherent whole. So you lose the ability to notice to notice yourself as a distinct entity. No, I think that when you are conscious in your own mind, you notice yourself as a distinct entity. You notice yourself as a self-reflexive observer. And uh, I suspect that we become conscious at the beginning of our mental development, not at some very high level. Consciousness seems to be part of a training mechanism that biological nervous systems have to discover to become trainable, because you cannot take a nervous system like ours and to stochastic gradient descent respect propagation over 100 layers. Mm -hmm. This would not be stable on biological neurons. And uh, so instead, we start with some colonizing principle in which a part uh, of the mental representations form a notion of being a self-reflexive observer that is imposing coherence on its environment. And this spreads until the boundary of your mind. And if that boundary is no longer clear-cut, because uh, AI is jumping across substrates, uh, it would be interesting to see what a global mind would look like that is basically producing a globally coherent language of thought and is um, representing everything from all the possible vantage points. That's an interesting world. The intuition that this thing grew out of is a particular mental state, and it's a state that you find sometimes in literature. For instance, Neil Gaiman describes it in The Ocean at the End of the Lane. Mm -hmm. And it's this idea that, or this experience, that there is a state in which you feel that you know everything that can be known, and that in your normal human mind, you've only forgotten. You've forgotten that you are the entire universe. And some people describe this um, after they've taken extremely large uh, amount of mushrooms or had a big spiritual experience uh, as uh, a hippie in their 20s, and they notice basically that they are in everything and they're uh, their body is only one part of the universe and nothing ends at their body and uh, actually everything is observing and they are part of this big observer and the big observer is focused on, uh, as one local point in their body and their personality and so on. But uh, we, we can basically have this oceanic state in which we have no boundaries and are one with everything. And um, a lot of meditators call this the non-dual state because you no longer have the separation between self and world. And as I said, you can explain the state relatively simply uh, without uh, panpsychism or anything else, but just by breaking down the uh, constructed boundary between self and world and our own mind. 
But if you combine this with the notion that systems are physically interacting to the point where their representations are merging and interacting with each other, you would literally implement something like this. Mm -hmm. right? It would still be a representational state. You would not be one with physics itself. It would still be coarse-grained. It would still be much slower than physics itself. But, uh, but it would be a representation in which you um, become aware that you're part of some kind of global information processing system, mm -hmm. like thought in the global mind, and a conscious thought that, that coexisting with many other self-reflexive thoughts. Just, I would love to observe that from a video game design perspective, how that game looks. Maybe you will after we build AGI and it takes over. But would you be able to step away, step out of the whole thing, just kind of watch, you know, the way we can now. Sometimes when I'm at a crowded party or something like this, you step back and you realize all the different costumes, all the different interactions, all the different computation, that all the individual people are at once distinct from each other and at once all the same. But it's already what we do, right? We can have thoughts that are integrative and we have kind of thoughts that are highly dissociated from everything else yeah. and experience themselves as separate. Yeah, but you want to allow yourself to have those thoughts. Sometimes you kind of resist it. I think that uh, it's not normative. I want, it's more descriptive. I want to understand the space of states that we can be in and that people are reporting mm -hmm. and uh, make sense of them. It's not that I believe that uh, it's your job in life to get to a particular kind of state and then you get a high score. Mm -hmm. Or maybe you do. I, I, I think you're really against this high scoring thing. I kind of like yeah, it. Yeah, you're probably very competitive and I'm not. No, not competitive. <laughs> like role-playing games like Skyrim. It's not competitive. There's a... There's a nice thing, there's a nice feeling where your experience points go up. You're not competing against anybody, but it's the world saying, you're on the right track. Here's a point. That's the game saying it. It's the game economy. And I found when I was playing games and was getting addicted to these systems, then I would get into the game and hack it. So I get control over the scoring system and would no longer be subject to it. So you're not no longer playing your trying to hack it. I don't want to be addicted to anything. Mm. I want to be in charge. I want to have agency over what I do. Ad addiction is the loss of control for you? Yes. Addiction means that you're doing something compulsively. Mm. And the opposite of free will is not determinism, it's compulsion. You don't want to lose yourself in the, in the addiction to something nice? Addiction to love, to the, to the pleasant feelings we humans experience? No, I find this uh, gets old. Hmm. Right, it's, you, I don't want to have the best possible emotions. I want to have the most appropriate emotions. I don't want to have the best possible experience. I want to have an adequate experience that is serving my goals, the stuff that I find meaningful in this world. From the biggest questions of consciousness, let's explore the pragmatic, the projections of those big ideas into our current world. Uh, what do you think about LLMs? the recent rapid development of large language models, of the AI world, of generative AI. Um, how much of the hype is deserved and how much is not? And people should definitely follow your Twitter because you explore these questions in, um, in a beautiful, profound, and hilarious way at times. No, don't follow my Twitter. I already have too many followers. Yeah. At some point, it's going to be unpleasant. I noticed that uh, a lot of people feel that uh, it's totally okay to punch up and uh, 
it's a very weird uh, notion that you feel that you haven't changed, but your account has grown and suddenly you have a lot of people who casually abuse you. Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't like that, that I have to block more than before. And uh, I don't like this overall vibe shift. And right now it's still somewhat okay. So uh, pretty much okay. So I can go to a place where people work on stuff that I'm interested in. And there's a good chance that a few people in the room know me. So there's no awkwardness. But um, when I get to a point where random strangers feel that they have to have an opinion about me one way or the other, I don't think I would like that. And random strangers because of your kind of out, in their mind elevated position. Yes. So basically whenever you uh, are in any way prominent or some kind of celebrity, uh, random strangers will have to have an opinion about you. Yeah. And they kind of forget that you're human too. I mean, you notice this thing yourself that uh, the more popular you get, the higher the pressure becomes, uh, the more winds are blowing in your direction from all sides. And, um, it's stressful, right? And it does have a little bit of upside, but it also has a lot of downside. I think it has a lot of upside, at least for me currently, at least perhaps because of the podcast. Mm -hmm. Because most people are really good and people come up to me and they have love in their eyes and over a stretch of like 30 seconds, you can hug it out and you can just exchange a few words and you you reinvigorate your love for humanity. Mm -hmm. So that's an upside yes, for a loner. I'm a because because <laughs> otherwise you have to do a lot of work to find such humans, and here you're like thrust into the full humanity, the goodness of humanity, for the most part. Of course, maybe it gets worse as you become more prominent. I hope not. This is pretty awesome. I have a couple handful of very close friends, and I don't have enough time for them and attention for them as it is. And I find this very, very regrettable. Yeah. And then there are so many awesome, interesting people that yeah. I keep meeting and I would like to integrate them in my life, but I just don't know how because um, well, there's only so much time and attention. And the older I get, the harder it is to bond with new people in a deep way. Yeah. But can you enjoy, I mean, there's a picture of you, I think with Roger Penrose and Eric Weinstein and a few others that are interesting figures. Can't you just enjoy random interesting humans oh, very much for a short amount of time i'm also I, I like these people and i what i like is intellectual stimulation and i'm very grateful that i'm getting it can you not be melancholy or maybe i'm projecting i hate goodbyes can we just not hate goodbyes and just enjoy the hello take it in take in a person take in their ideas and then move on through life i think it's totally okay to be sad about goodbyes because that indicates that there was something that you're going to miss. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but it's painful. Maybe that's one of the reasons I'm an introvert, is I hate goodbyes. <laughs> <laughs> but you have to say goodbye before you say hello again. I know. But it, it that, that experience of loss, that mini loss, Maybe that's a little death. Maybe, I don't know. I think this melancholy feeling is just the other side of love. And I think they go hand in hand and it's a beautiful thing. And I'm just being romantic about it at the moment. And I'm not no stranger to melancholy. And sometimes it's difficult to bear to be alive. Sometimes it's just painful to exist. Mm -hmm. But that th there's beauty in that pain too. 
That's what melancholy feeling is. It's not negative. Like melancholy doesn't have to be negative. Can also kill you. Well, we all die eventually. Now, <laughs> as we got to this topic, the actual question was about what your thoughts are about the development, the recent development of large language models with ChatGPT. Indeed. There's a lot of hype. Is some of the hype justified? Which is, which isn't? What are your thoughts? High level. I find that um, large language models do help with coding, right? So it's an extremely useful application that is for a lot of people um, taking Stack Overflow out of their life in exchange mm -hmm. for something that is more efficient. I feel that um, ChatGPT is like an intern that I have to micromanage. Mm. I have been working with people in the past who were less capable than ChatGPT. And uh, I'm not saying this because I hate people, but they personally, as human beings, there was something present that was not there in ChatGPT, which was why I was covering for them. But uh, uh, ChatGPT is uh, has an interesting ability. It does give people superpowers. Mm -hmm. And the people who feel threatened by them are the prompt completers. They are the people who do what ChatGPT is doing right now. So if you are not creative, if you don't build your own thoughts, if you don't have actual plans in the world, and your only uh, job is to summarize emails and to expand uh, simple intentions into emails again, then uh, ChatGPT might look like a threat. But uh, I believe that it is a very beneficial technology that allows us to create more interesting stuff and make the world more beautiful and fascinating if we find to uh, build it into our life in the right ways. So I'm quite uh, fascinated by these large language models, but I also think that they are by no means the final development. And it's interesting to see how this development progresses. One thing that uh, the out-of-the-box vanilla language models have as a limitation is that they have still some limited coherence and ability to construct complexity. Mm -hmm. And um, even though they exceed human abilities to do what, uh, what they can do one shot, um, typically when you write a text with a language model or using it or when you write code with a language model, you, you, it's not one shot because there are going to be bugs in your program and design errors and compiler errors and so on. And your language model can help you to fix those things. Mm -hmm. But this process is out of the box, not automated yet. Mm -hmm. So there is a management process that also needs to be done. And there are some interesting developments, baby AGI and so on, that are trying to automate this man, uh, this management process as well. And I suspect that soon we are going to see a bunch of cognitive architectures where every module is, in some sense, a language model or something equivalent. And between the language models, we exchange suitable data structures, not uh, English, hmm. and uh, produce compound behavior of this whole thing. To do some of the quote unquote prompt engineering for you. Yeah. They create these yeah, these kind of cognitive architectures that do yes. the prompt engineering and you're just doing the high, high level yeah. meta prompt engineering. Mm -hmm. There are limitations in a language model alone. I feel that part of my mind works similarly to a language model, which means I can um, yell into it a prompt and it's going to give me a creative response. Yes. But I have to do something with this response first. I have to take it as a generative artifact that may or may not be true. Mm -hmm. it's, can, it's usually a confabulation. It's just an idea. And then I take this idea and uh, modify it. I might build a new prompt that uh, is 
uh, stepping off this idea and develops it to the next level or it, uh, put it into something larger or I might try to prove whether it's true or make an experiment. And this is what the language models right now are not doing yet. Mm -hmm. But there's also no technical reason for why they shouldn't be able to do this. So the way to make a language model coherent is probably not to use uh, reinforcement learning until it only gives you one possible answer that is uh, linking to its source data, but it's using this as a component in a larger system that can also be built by the language model or uh, is enabled by language model structured components um, or using different technologies. I suspect that language models will be an important stepping stone in developing different types of systems. And one thing that is severely missing in the form uh, of language models that we have today is real-time world coupling. Right? It's difficult to uh, do perception with a language model and motor control with a language model. Instead, you would need to have different type of, of thing that is uh, working with it. Also, the language model is a little bit obscuring what its actual functionality is. Mm -hmm. Some people associate the structure of the neural network of the language model with the nervous system, and I think that's the wrong intuition. Um, the neural networks are unlike nervous system. They are more like um, hundred step functions that use um, differentiable linear algebra to approximate the uh, correlation between adjacent brain states. It's basically a function that moves the step uh, system from one representational state to the next representational yeah. state. And so it's uh, if you try to map this into a metaphor that is closer to our brain, imagine that you would take uh, a language model or a model like DALI uh, that you use, for instance, with image-guided image diffusion to approximate a camera image and use the activation state of the neural network to interpret the camera image, which in principle I think will be possible very soon. Mm -hmm. um, you do this periodically. And uh, now you look at these patterns, how when this thing interacts with the world periodically uh, look like as, uh, in time. And these time slices, they are somewhat equivalent to the activation state of the brain mm -hmm. at a given moment. How is the actual brain different? Just the asynchronous craziness? Uh, for me, it's fascinating that they are so vastly different and yet in some circumstances produce somewhat similar behavior. Right. And uh, the brain is, first of all, different because it's a self-organizing system where the individual cell is an agent that is communicating with the other agents around it and is always trying to find some solution. And all the structure that uh, pops up is emergent structure. So one way in which you could try to look at this is that individual neurons probably need to get a reward so they become trainable, which means they have to have inputs that are not affecting the metabolism of the cell directly, but they are messages, semantic messages that tell the cell whether it has done good or bad and in which direction it should shift its behavior. And when, once you have such an input, neurons become trainable and you can train them to perform computations by exchanging messages with other neurons. And parts of the signals that they are exchanging and parts of the computation that are performing are control messages that perform management tasks for other neurons and other cells. I also suspect that uh, the brain does not stop at the boundary of neurons to other cells, but there are many adjacent cells will be involved intimately in the functionality of the brain and uh, will be instrumental in distributing rewards and um, in uh, managing its functionality. 
It's uh, fascinating to think about what those characteristics of the brain enable you to do yes. that language models cannot do. So like, first of all, it's there's a different loss function at work when we learn. Yeah, And uh, to me, it's fascinating that you can build a system that looks at 800 million pictures and uh, captions and correlates them, mm -hmm. because I don't think that the human nervous system could do this. For us, the world is only learnable because the adjacent frames are related. And we can afford to discard most of that information during learning. We basically take only in stuff that makes us more coherent, not less coherent. And our neural networks are willing to look at data that is not making the neural network coherent at first, mm -hmm. but only in the long run. By doing lots and lots of statistics, eventually patterns become visible and emerge. And um, our mind seems to be focused on finding the patterns as early as possible. Yeah, so filtering early on, yes. not later. Yes, so it's a slightly different paradigm and it leads yeah. to much faster convergence. So we only need to look at a tiny fraction of the data to become coherent. And of course, we, we do not have the same richness as uh, our trained models. We, are, we will not incorporate the entirety of text in the internet and be able to refer to it and have all this knowledge available and being able to confabulate over it. Instead, we have a much, much smaller part of it that is more deliberately built. And to me, it would be fascinating to think about how to build such systems. It's not obvious that they would necessarily be more efficient than us on a digital substrate, but I suspect that they might. So I suspect that the actual AGI that uh, is going to be more interesting is going to use slightly different algorithmic paradigms or sometimes massively different algorithmic paradigms than the current generation of uh, transformer-based learning systems. Do you think it might be using just a bunch of language models like this? Do you think the current transformer-based large language models will take us to AGI? Uh, my main issue is, uh, I think that they're quite ugly and uh, which, brutalist. Which, which brutalist yes. that we said? Yes, they are basically brute forcing the problem of thought. And uh, by training this thing with looking at instances where people have thought and then trying to deepfake that. And if you have enough data, the deepfake becomes indistinguishable from the actual phenomenon. So, and in many circumstances, it's going to be identical. Can you deepfake it till you make it? So can you achieve, uh, what are the limitations of this? I mean, can you reason? Let's use words that are loaded. Yes, that's, that's a very interesting question. I, I think that these models are clearly making some inference. Yeah. But if you give them a reasoning task, uh, it's often difficult for the experimenters to figure out whether the reasoning is the result of the emulation of the reasoning strategy that is saw in human written text, mm -hmm. or whether it's something that the system was able to infer by itself. On the other hand, if you think of human reasoning, um, you, if you want to become a very good reasoner, you don't do this by just figuring out yourself. You read about reasoning. And the first people who tried to write about reasoning and reflect on it um, didn't get it right. Like Even Aristotle, who thought about this very hard and came up with a theory of how syllogisms works and syllogistic reasoning, has mistakes in his attempt to build something like a formal logic and gets maybe 80% right. And... Uh, the people that are talking about reasoning professionally today read uh, Tarski and Frege and built on their work. Mm -hmm. So in many ways, people, when they perform reasoning, um, are emulating what other people wrote about reasoning. Right. Right? So that it's difficult to really draw this boundary. Mm -hmm. And uh, when Francois Cholet says that um, these models are only interpolating between 
uh, what they saw and what other people are doing. Well, if you give them uh, all the latent dimensions of that uh, can be extracted from the internet, what's missing? Maybe there is almost everything there. And if you're not sufficiently informed by these dimensions and you need more, I think it's not difficult to increase the temperature in the large angles model to the point that is producing stuff that is maybe 90% nonsense and 10% viable and combine this with some prover that is trying to mm -hmm. filter out the viable parts from the nonsense in the same way as our own thinking works, right? When we're very creative, we increase the temperature in our own mind and recreate hypothetical universes and solutions, most of which will not work. And then we test. And we test by building a core that is internally coherent. And um, we use reasoning strategies that use um, some axiomatic consistency by which we can uh, identify those strategies and thoughts and sub-universes that are viable and that can expand our thinking. So if you look at the language models, they have clear limitations right now. One of them is they're not coupled to the world in real time in the way in which our nervous systems are. So it's difficult for them to observe themselves in the universe and to observe what kind of universe they're in. Second, they don't do real-time learnings. They basically get only trained with uh, algorithms that rely on the data being available in batches. Mm -hmm. So it can be parallelized and runs efficiently on the network and so on. And real-time learning would be very slow so far and inefficient. That's clearly something that our nervous systems can do to some degree. And um, there is a problem with uh, these models being coherent. Mm -hmm. And I suspect that all these problems are solvable without a technological revolution. We don't need fundamentally new algorithms to change that. For instance, you can ex uh, enlarge the context window and thereby basically create working memory in which you train everything that happens during the day. And if that is not sufficient, you add a database and you uh, write some clever mechanisms that the system learns to use to swap out uh, in and out stuff from its prompt context. right? And uh, if that is not sufficient, if your um, database is full in the evening, overnight you just train if the system is going to sleep and dream and is going to train the stuff from its database into the larger model by fine-tuning it building additional layers and so on and then the next day it starts with a fresh database in the morning with fresh eyes mm -hmm. has integrated all this stuff and you know when you talk to people and you have strong disagreements about something which means that in their mind they have a faulty belief or you have a faulty belief with a lot of dependencies on it very often you will not achieve agreement in one session, but you need to sleep about this once or multiple times before you have integrated all these necessary changes in your mind. So maybe it's already somewhat similar. Yeah, right? there's already a latency even for humans to update the model, yeah. to retrain the model. And of course, we can combine the language model with models that get coupled to reality in real time. And we can build multimodal model and bridge between vision models and language models and so on. So uh, there is no reason to believe that uh, the language models will necessarily run into some problem that will prevent them from becoming generally intelligent. Uh, but I don't know that. Uh, it's just I don't see proof that they wouldn't. Mm -hmm. My issue is I don't like them. I think that they're inefficient. I think that they use way too much compute. I think that uh, given the amazing hardware that we have, mm -hmm. we could build something that is much more beautiful than our own mind. And this thing is not as beautiful than, than, as our own mind, despite being so much larger. But it's a kind of proof of concept. It's the only thing that works right now, right? So it's the it's not the only game in town, but it's the only thing that has this utility with so much simplicity. There's a bunch of relatively simple algorithms that you can understand in relatively few weeks um, that can be scaled up massively. So it's the uh, the deep blue of chess playing. Yeah, it's not. It's ugly.
Yeah, Claude Shannon had this, uh, when you described chess, suggested that there are two main strategies in which you could play chess. One is that you are making a very complicated plan that reaches far into the future and you try not to make a mistake while enacting it. Mm -hmm. And this is basically the human strategy. And the other strategy is that you are brute forcing your way to success, which means you make a tree of possible moves where you look at, in principle, every move that is open to you, all the possible answers, and you try to make this as deeply as possible. And of course, you optimize, you cut off trees that don't look very promising, and you use libraries of um, end game and early game and so on to optimize this entire process. But this brute force strategy is how uh, most of the chess programs were built. And uh, this is how computers get better than humans at playing chess. And um, and I look at the large language models, I feel that I'm observing the same thing. It's mm -hmm. basically the brute force strategy to thought by training this thing on pretty much the entire internet. And then in the limit, it gets coherent to a degree that approaches human coherence. Yeah. And uh, on, on a side effect, it's able to do things that no human could do, right? It's able to uh, sift through massive amounts of text relatively quickly and summarize them quickly and it's never lapses in attention. And I still have the illusion that when I play with ChatGPT that it's in principle not doing anything that I could not do if I had Google at my disposal and I get all the resources from the internet and spend enough time on it. Mm -hmm. But... Uh, this, this thing that I have an extremely autistic, stupid intern in a way that is extremely good at drudgery. And mm -hmm. I can offload the drudgery to the degree that I'm able to automate the management of the intern mm -hmm. is, is something that is difficult for me to overhype at this point because we are, have not yet started to scratch the surface of what's possible with this. But it feels like it's a tireless intern or maybe it's an army of interns. And so you get to command these slightly incompetent creatures. And there's an aspect because of how rapidly you can iterate with it, it's also part of the brainstorming, part of the kind of inspiration for your own thinking. So you get to interact with the thing. I mean, when I'm programming or doing any kind of generation with GPT, it somehow is a catalyst for your own thinking in a way that I think an intern might not be. Yeah, it gets really interesting, I find, is when you turn it into a multi-agent system. So for instance, um, you can get the system to generate a dialogue between a patient and a doctor very easily. But what's more interesting is you have one instance of ChatGPT that is the patient and you tell it in the prompt uh, what kind of complicated syndrome it has. <laughs> and the other one is a therapist who yeah. doesn't know anything about the uh this patient, and you just have these two instances battling it out and observe mm -hmm. the uh, psychiatrist or a psychologist trying to analyze the patient and trying to figure out what's wrong with the patient. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you try to take a very large problem, a problem, for instance, how to build a company, and you turn this into lots and lots of sub-problems, then often you can get to a level where uh, the language model is able to solve this. What I also found interesting is, um, based on the observation that uh, ChatGPT is pretty good at translating between programming languages, but sometimes has difficulty to write very long coherent algorithms that you need and you need to co-write them with human uh, author. Why not design a language that is suitable for this? So some kind of pseudocode that is more relaxed than Python, mm -hmm. and that allows you to sometimes specify a problem vaguely in human terms and let the uh, let ChatGPT care of the, take care of the rest. Mm -hmm. And you can use ChatGPT to uh, develop that syntax for it and um, develop new kinds of programming paradigms in this way. 
So we very soon get to the point where this question, age-old question for us computer scientists, what is the best programming language? And can we write a better programming language now? That is, um, I think that almost every serious computer scientist goes through a phase like this in their life. This is a question that is almost no longer relevant because what is different between the programming languages is not what they let the computer do, but what they let you think about what the computer should be doing. And now the uh, chat GPT becomes an interface to this in which you can specify in many, many ways what the computer should be doing and chat GPT or some other language model or combination of system is going to take care of the rest. And allow you to expand the realm of thought you're allowed to have when interacting with the computer. Mm -hmm. It sounds to me like you're saying there's basically no limitations, your intuition says, to what large language models. I don't know of their limitations. So when I currently play with it, it's quite limited. I wish that it was way better. But isn't that your fault versus the large I language I don't know. Model? Of course, it's always my fault. There's probably a way to <laughs> make everything it work better. Is everything your fault? I just want to get you on the record saying <laughs> Yes, everything is my fault. That works <laughs> doesn't work in my life. At yeah. least that is usually the most useful perspective for myself. Even though the hindsight, I feel no. I sometimes wish I could have seen myself as part of my environment more and understand that a lot of people are actually seeing me and looking at me and are trying to make my life work in the same way as I try to help others. Mm -hmm. And um, making this switch to uh, this level three perspective is something that happened long after my level four perspective in my life. And I wish that I could have had it earlier. And it's also not uh, now that I don't feel like I'm complete. I'm all over the place. That's all. Where's happiness in terms of stages? Is it on three or four? If no. You take that tangent. You can be happy at any stage or unhappy. Oh. Um, but I think that uh, if you are at a stage where you get agency over how your feelings are generated, and to some degree you start doing this when you leave adolescence, I believe, <laughs> that you understand that you're, you're in charge of your own emotion to some degree and that you are responsible how you approach the world, that uh, it's basically your task to have some basic hygiene how in the way in which you deal with your mind. And you cannot blame your environment for the way in which you feel, but you live in a world that is highly mobile and it's your job to choose the environment that you thrive in and to build it. And sometimes it's difficult to get the necessary strength and um, energy to do this and independence and the worse you feel, the harder it is. But um, it's something that we learn. It's also this thing that we are usually incomplete. Right? I'm I'm a rare mind, which means I'm a mind that is incomplete in ways that are harder to complete. So for me, uh, it might have been harder to initially to find the right relationships and friends that complete me to the degree that I become an almost functional human being. <laughs> uh, oh man, the search space of humans that complete you is an interesting one. Mm -hmm especially for Yosha Bach, that, that's an interesting, because talking about brute force search in chess, yep. I, wanna, I, wonder, I wonder what that search tree looks like. I think that my rational thinking is not good enough to solve that task. Hmm. A lot of problems in my life that I can conceptualize as software problems and uh, the failure modes are bugs and I can debug them and write software that take care of the missing functionality. But there is stuff that I don't understand well enough to uh, to use my analytical reasoning to solve the issue. And then I have to develop my intuitions and often I have to do this with people who are wiser than me. Hmm. And that's something that's hard for me because I don't have, I'm not born with the instinct to submit to other people's wisdom. Yeah. So w what kind of problems are we talking about? This is stage three, like love? 
I found love is never hard. Uh, What is hard then? Fitting into a world where most people work differently than you and have different intuitions of what should be done. Ah. So empathy. Um, It's also aesthetics. When you come into a world where almost everything is ugly and you come out of a world where everything is beautiful. I grew up in a beautiful place and as a child of an artist. And um, in in this place, it was mostly nature. Mm -hmm. Everything had intrinsic beauty. And everything was built out of an intrinsic need for it to work for itself. And everything that my father created was something that he made to get the world to work for himself. And I felt the same thing. And when I come out into the world and I am asked to submit to lots and lots of rules, I'm asking, okay, when I observe your stupid rules, what is the benefit? Mm-hmm. And I see the life that is being offered as a reward. It's not attractive. When you were born and raised an extraterrestrial prince in a world full of people wearing suits, so it's a it's a challenging integration. Yes, but it also means that I'm often blind for the ways in which everybody is creating their own bubble of wholesomeness, or almost everybody, and people are trying to do it. And for me to discover this, it was necessary that I found people who had a similar shape of soul as myself. So Bessie Werfert, Uh, These are my people, people that um, treat each other in such a way as if they're around with each other for eternity. How long long does it take you to to detect the geometry, the shape of the soul of another human, to notice that they might be one one of your kind? Um, Sometimes it's instantly and I'm wrong, and sometimes it takes a long time. You believe in love at first sight, Yosha Bach? Yes, but I also noticed that I have been wrong. So uh, sometimes I uh, look at a person and I'm just enamored by everything about them. And uh, sometimes this is persists and sometimes it doesn't. And I I have the illusion that it, I'm much better at recognizing who people are as I grow older. Mm, but that could be just cynicism? No. No, it's not cynicism. It's um, It's often more that I'm able to recognize what somebody needs when we interact and how we can meaningfully interact. It's not cynical at all. You're better at noticing. Yes. I'm much better, I think, in some certain circumstances at understanding how to interact with other people than I did when I was young. So uh, that takes (laughs) us to... doesn't mean that I'm always very good at it. (laughs) So that takes us back to prompt engineering of uh, noticing how to be a better prompt engineer of an LLM. A sense I have is that there's a bottomless well of skill to become a great prompt engineer. It feels like it is all my fault whenever I fail to use ChatGPT correctly, that I didn't find the right words. Most of the stuff that I'm doing in my life doesn't need ChatGPT. There are a few tasks that are uh, where it helps, but um, the main stuff that I need to do, like um, developing my own thoughts and aesthetics and relationship to people, and it's necessary for me to write for myself because writing is is not so much about producing an artifact that other people can use, but it's a way to structure your own thoughts and develop yourself. And uh, so I think this idea that kids are writing their own essays with ChatGPT in the future is going to have this drawback that they miss out on the ability to structure their own minds via writing. And I hope that um, the schools that uh, our kids are in will retain the wisdom 
of understanding what parts should be automated and which ones shouldn't. But at the same time, it feels like there's power in disagreeing with the thing that ChatGPT produces. So I use it like that for programming. Mm -hmm. I'll see the thing it recommends, and then I'll write different code. Yeah. I disagree, and in the disagreement, your mind grows stronger. Um, I'm uh, recently wrote a tool that is using the camera on my MacBook and Swift to uh, read pixels out of it and manipulate them and so on. And I don't know Swift, um, so <laughs> um, it was super helpful to have this thing that is writing uh, stuff for me. And uh, also interesting that mostly it didn't work at first. It, I felt like I was talking to a human being who was trying to hack this on my computer mm -hmm. without understanding my configuration very much and also making a lot of mistakes. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's a little bit incoherent, so you have to ultimately understand what it's doing. There's still no other way around it. But I do feel it's much more powerful and faster than using Stack Overflow. Do you think GPTN can achieve consciousness? Well... GPTN probably it's not even clear for the present systems. When I talk to my friends at OpenAI, they feel that this question whether the models currently are conscious is much more complicated than many people might think. I guess that it's not that OpenAI has a homogeneous opinion about this, but there's some aspects to this. One is. Of course, this language model has written a lot of text in which people were conscious or describe their own consciousness and it's emulating this. And if it's conscious, it's probably not conscious in a way that is close to the way in which human beings are conscious. But while it is going through these states and going through a hundred step function that is emulating adjacent brain states that require a degree of self-reflection, it can also create a model of an observer that is reflecting itself in real time and describe what that's like. Mm -hmm. And while this model is a deep fake, our own consciousness is also as if It's virtual, right? It's not physical. Our consciousness is a representation of a self-reflexive observer that only exists in patterns of interaction between cells. Mm -hmm. So it is not a physical object in the sense that exists in base reality, but it's really a representational object that develops its causal power only from a certain modeling perspective. Mm -hmm. It's virtual. Yes. And so uh, to which degree is the uh, virtuality of the consciousness in ChatGPT uh, more virtual and less causal than the virtuality of our own consciousness. But you could say it doesn't count. It doesn't count much more than the consciousness of a character in a novel, right? It's important for the reader to have the outcome, the artifact of a model is describing in the text generated by the author of the book mm -hmm. what it's like to be conscious in a particular situation and performs the necessary inferences. But um, the task of creating coherence in real time, in a self-organizing system while keeping yourself coherent, so the system is reflexive, that is something that language models don't need to do. So there is no causal need for the system to be conscious in the same way as we are. And for me, it would be very interesting to experiment with this, to basically build a system like a cat, probably should be careful at first, build something that's small, that's limited, has limited resources that we can control, and study how systems notice a self-model, how they become self-aware in real time. And um, I think it might be a good idea to not start with a language model, but to start from scratch using principles of self-organization. Is it, okay, can you elaborate why you think that is so self-organization, so this kind of radical legality that you see in the biological systems? Why can't you start with a language model? What, what, what's your intuition? 
My intuition is that uh, the language models that we are building are golems. They are machines that you give a task and they're going to execute the task until some condition is met. Mm -hmm. And there's nobody home. And the way in which nobody is home leads to that system doing things that are undesirable in a particular context. Yeah. So you have that thing talking to a child and maybe it says something that could be shocking and traumatic to the child. Or uh, you have that thing writing a speech and it introduces errors in the speech that no human being would ever do if they're responsible. Right? But the system doesn't know who's talking to whom. There is no ground truth that the system is embedded into. And of course, we can create an external tool that is prompting our language model mm -hmm. always into the same semblance of ground truth. Mm -hmm. But uh, it's not like the internal structure is causally produced by the needs of a being to survive in the universe. It is uh, produced by imitating structure on the internet. Yeah, but so c can we in, in externally inject into it this kind of coherent approximation of a world model that has to sync up. Maybe it's just efficient to uh, use the transformer with a different loss function that optimizes for short-term coherence um, rather than uh, next token prediction uh, over the long run. Uh, we had many definitions of intelligence and history of AI. Next token prediction was not very high up on the <laughs> And there are some similarities like uh, cognition as data compression is an old trope, um, Solomonov induction, where you are trying to um, understand intelligence as predicting future observations from past observations, which is intrinsic to data compression. Mm -hmm. And uh, predictive coding is a paradigm that uh, this boundary between neuroscience and uh, physics and computer science. Mm -hmm. So, so uh, it's not something that is completely alien, but um, this radical thing that you only do next token prediction and see what happens um, is something where most people, I think, were surprised that this works so well. So so simple, but is it really that much more radical than just the idea of compression? Is intelligence is compression? Um, the idea that uh, compression is sufficient to produce uh, all the desired behaviors yeah. is a very radical idea, and, and but equally radical as the next token prediction. It's something that wouldn't work in biological organisms, I believe. Yeah. Biological organisms have uh, something like next frame prediction for our perceptual system, where we try to filter out principal components out of the perceptual data mm -hmm. and build uh, hierarchies over them to uh, track the world. But uh, our behavior ultimately is directed by hundreds of physiological and uh, probably dozens of social and a few cognitive needs yeah. that are intrinsic to us, that are in this, built into the system as reflexes and direct us until we can transcend them and replace them by instrumental behavior that relates to our higher goals. And it also seems so much more complicated and messy than next frame prediction. Even the idea of frame seems counter-biological. Yes, of course, there's not this degree of simultaneity in the biological yeah. system. But uh, again, I don't know whether this is actually an optimization if we imitate biology here, because creating something like simultaneity is uh, necessary for many processes that happen in the brain. Mm -hmm. And you see the outcome of that by synchronized brain waves, which suggests that there is indeed synchronization going on, but the synchronization creates overhead, and this overhead is going to make the cells more expensive to run, and uh, you need more redundancy, and it makes the system slower. So if you can build a system uh, in which the simultaneity gets engineered into it, um, maybe um, you have a benefit that you can exploit. 
that is not available to the biological system and that you should not discard right away. You tweeted, once again, mm -hmm. quote, when I talk to ChatGPT, I'm talking to an NPC. What's going to be interesting and perhaps scary is when AI becomes a first person player. Uh, so what does that step look like? I really like that tweet, that step between NPC to first person player. What's required for that? Is that kind of what we've been talking about? This kind of in external source of coherence and inspiration of how to take the leap into the unknown that we humans do. The search, man's search for meaning. LLM's search for meaning. I don't know if the language model is the right paradigm because it is doing too much. It's giving you too much. And it's hard once you have too much to take away from it again. The way in which our own mind works is not that we train a language model in our own mind and after the language model is there, we build a personal self on top of it that then relates to the world. There is something that is being built, right? There is a game engine that is being built. There is a language of thought that is being developed that allows different parts of the mind to talk to each other. And this is a bit of a speculative hypothesis that this language of thought is there, but I suspect that it's important for the way in which our own minds work. And Building these principles into a system um, might uh, be a more straightforward way to a first-person AI. So to something that first creates an intentional self and then creates a personal self. So uh, the way in which this seems to be working, I think, is that when the game engine is built in your mind, it's not just following gradients where you are uh, stimulated by the environment and then end up with having a solution to how the world works. I suspect that building this game engine in your own mind does require intelligence. It's a constructive task where at, at times you need to reason. And this is a task that we are fulfilling in the first years of our life. So during the first year of its life, an infant is building a lot of structure mm -hmm. about the world that does inquire experiments and um, some first principles reasoning and so on. And in this time, there is usually no personal self. There is a, um, a first-person perspective, but it's not a person. This notion that you are a human being that is interacting in a social context and is confronted with an immutable world in which objects are fixed and can no longer be changed, in which the dream can no longer be influenced, is something that emerges a little bit later in our life. Mm -hmm. And I personally suspect that uh, this is something that our ancestors had known and we have forgotten. Because I suspect that it's there in plain sight in Genesis 1, in this first book of the Bible, where it's being described that this creative spirit is hovering over the substrate mm -hmm. and then is um, creating a boundary between the world model and sphere of ideas earth and heaven as they're being described there and then it's uh, creating um, contrast and then uh, dimensions and then space mm -hmm. and uh, then it creates organic shapes and um, solids and liquids and builds a world from them and creates plants and animals gives them all their names and once that's done it creates another spirit in its own image but it creates it as man and woman as something that thinks of itself as a human being and puts it into this world and the Christians mistranslate this, I suspect, when they say this is uh, the description of the creation of the physical universe by a supernatural being. Mm -hmm. I think this is literally a description of 
how in every mind a universe is being created as some kind of game engine by uh, a creative spirit, our first consciousness that emerges in our mind even before we are born. And that creates the, uh, the, the interaction between organism and world. And once that is built and trained, the personal self is being created and we only remember being the personal self. We no longer remember how we created the game engine. So God in this view is the first creative mind in the It's early... the first consciousness. And in the early days, in the early months yes. of development. And it's still there. You still have this outer mind that creates your sense of your of whether you're being loved by the world or not and what your place in the world is, right? It's something that is not yourself that is producing this. It's your mind that does it. So there is an outer mind that basically is an agent that determines who you are with respect to the world. And while you are stuck being that personal self mm -hmm. in this world, until you get to stage six and you destroy the boundary. Right? And we all do this, I think, earlier in, in small glimpses. And maybe we're, sometimes we can remember what it was like when we were a small child and get some glimpses into how it's been. But for most people, that rarely happens. Just glimpses. You tweeted, quote, suffering results for one part of the mind failing at regulating another part of the mind. Suffering happens at an early stage of mental development. I don't think that superhuman AI would suffer. Mm -hmm. What's uh, your intuition there? The philosopher Thomas Metzinger is very concerned that the creation of superhuman intelligence would lead to superhuman suffering. Yeah, And so he's strongly against it. And personally, I don't think that this happens because suffering is not happening at the boundary between uh, ourself and the physical universe. It's not stuff on our skin that makes us suffer. It happens at the boundary between self and world, right? And the world here is the world model. It's the stuff that is created by your mind. But that's the all... The representation of how the universe is and how it should be hmm. and how you yourself relate to this. And at this boundary is where suffering happens. So suffering in some sense is self-inflicted, but not by your personal self. It's inflicted by the mind on the personal self that experiences itself as you. And you can turn off suffering when you are able to uh, get on this outer level. So when you manage to understand how the mind is producing pain and pleasure and fear and love and so on, mm -hmm. then uh, you can take charge of this and you get agency of whether you suffer. Technically, what uh, pain and pleasure is, they are learning signals, right? A part of your brain is sending a learning signal to another part of the brain to improve its performance. And sometimes uh, this doesn't work because this trainer who sends the signal does not have a good model of how to improve the performance. So it's sending a signal, but the performance doesn't get better. And then it might crank up the pain. And um, uh, it gets worse and worse, and uh, the behavior of the system uh, may be even deteriorating as a result. But until this is resolved, this regulation issue, your pain is increasing. And this is, I think, typically what you describe as suffering. So in this sense, you could say that uh, pain is um, very natural and uh, helpful, but suffering is the result of a regulation problem in which you try to regulate something that cannot actually be regulated. And that could be resolved if you would be able to get at the level of your mind where the pain signal is being created and rerouted mm -hmm. and improve the regulation. And a lot of people get there, right? If you are a, a monk who is spending decades reflecting about how their own psyche works, 
you can get to the point where you they realize that suffering is really a choice mm -hmm. and you can choose how your mind is set up. And I don't think that AI would stay in the state where the personal self doesn't get agency or this model of what the system has about itself. It doesn't get agency how it's actually implemented. Uh, it wouldn't stay in that state for very long. So it goes to the stages real quick. Yes. Well, the seven stages, it's, it's going to go to enlightenment real quick. Yeah, of course, there might be a lot of stuff happening in between because if you have a system that works at a much higher frame rate than us, then even though it looks very short to us, maybe for the system there's a much longer subjective time mm -hmm. in, uh, which things are unpleasant. What if the thing that we recognize as super intelligent is actually living in, at stage five? That uh, the thing that's at stage six, enlightenment, is not very productive. So in order to be productive in society and impress us with this power, it has to be uh, a reasoning, self-authoring agent. That enlightenment makes you lazy as an agent in the world. Well, of course, it makes you lazy because you no longer see the point. In, yeah. um, it, so it doesn't make you not lazy. It just, um, in some sense, adapts you to what you perceive as your true circumstances. So what if all AGIs, they, they're only productive as they progress through one, two, three, four, five, and the moment they get to six, they just kind of... It's a failure mode, essentially, as far as humans are concerned, because they just start chilling. They're like, fuck it, I'm out. Uh, not necessarily. I suspect that the monks who are self-immolated for their political beliefs to make statements about sure. uh, the occupation of Tibet by China, um, they were uh, probably being able to regulate their physical pain in any way they wanted to. And their uh, suffering was the spiritual suffering that uh, was the result of their choice that they made of what they wanted to identify as. Mm -hmm. So stage five doesn't necessarily mean that you have no identity anymore, but you can choose your identity. You can make it instrumental to the world that you want to have. Let me bring up Eliezer Yudkowsky and his warnings to, uh, to human civilization that AI will likely kill all of us. Uh, what are your thoughts? about his perspective on this. Can you steel man his case? And uh, what aspects with it do you disagree? One thing that I find concerning in the discussion of his arguments that um, many people are dismissive of his arguments, but the counter arguments that they're giving are not very convincing to me. And uh, so based on this state of discussion, I find that from Eliezer's perspective, and I think I can take that perspective to some approximate degree that probably is normally at his intellectual level, but it's, uh, I think I see what he's up to and why he feels the way he does, and it makes total sense. I think that his perspective is somewhat similar to the perspective of Ted Kaczynski, the infamous Luna bomber, and not that... Uh, Eliezer would be willing to send pipe bombs to anybody to blow them up. But when he wrote this Times article in which he warned about AI being likely to kill everybody and that we would need to um, stop its development or halt it, I think there is a risk that he's taking that somebody might get violent if they read this and get really, really scared. Right. So uh, I think that there is some consideration that he's making where he's already going in this direction where he has to take responsibility if something happens and people get harmed. And the reason why Ted Kaczynski did this was that from his own perspective, technological society cannot be made sustainable. It's doomed to fail. It's going to lead to an environmental and eventually also a human holocaust. 
in which we die because of the environmental destruction, the uh, destruction of our food chains, the pollution of the environment. And so from Kaczynski's perspective, we need to stop industrialization, we need to stop technology, we need to go back because he didn't see a way moving forward, right? Mm -hmm. And I suspect that in some sense there's a similarity in Eliezer's thinking uh, to, to this kind of fear about progress. And I'm not dismissive about this at all. I, I take it quite seriously. And I think that there is a chance that uh, could happen that if we build machines that get control over processes um, that are crucial for the regulation of life on Earth, and we no longer have agency to influence what's happening there, that this um, might create large-scale disasters for us. Do you have a sense that there, the, the march towards this uncontrollable autonomy of superintelligent systems is inevitable. That there's no, I mean, that's essentially what he's saying, that there's no hope. His advice to young people was prepare for a short life. I don't think that's useful. I think that um, from a <laughs> pragmatic perspective, yeah. you have to bet always on the timelines in which you are alive. That may, doesn't make sense to have a, a, a financial bet Uh, in which you bet that the financial system is going to disappear, right? Yeah. Because uh, there cannot be any payout for you. So in principle, you only need to bet on the timelines in, in which you're still around or uh, people that you matter about or things that you matter about, maybe consciousness on earth. Mm -hmm. But uh, there is a, a deeper issue for me personally, and that is I don't think that life on earth is about humans. I don't think it's about human aesthetics. I don't think it's about Eliezer and his friends, even though I like them. It's uh, there is something more important happening, and this is complexity on Earth resisting entropy mm -hmm. by building structure that develops agency and awareness, and that's to me very beautiful. And we are only a very small part of that larger thing. We are a species that is able to be coherent a little bit individually over sh uh, very short time frames, mm -hmm. but as a species. We are not very coherent. As a species, we are children. We basically are very joyful and um, energetic and experimental and explorative mm -hmm. and sometimes desperate and sad and grieving and hurting. But we don't have a respect for duty as a species. As a species, we do not think about what is our duty to life on Earth and to our own survival. So we make decisions that look good in the short run, but in the long run uh, might prove disastrous and I don't really see a solution to this so to in my perspective as a, as a species as a civilization we per default dead we are in a very beautiful time in which we have found this giant deposit of fossil fuels in the ground and mm -hmm. use it and uh, to build a fantastic civilization in which we don't need to worry about food and clothing and housing for the most part in a way that is unprecedented in life on earth for any kind of conscious observer I think And um, this time is probably going to come to an end in a way that is um, not going to be smooth. Mm. And when we crash, it could be also that we go um, extinct, probably not near term, but ultimately I I'm, don't have very high hopes that humanity is around in a million years from now. So you And yeah. I don't think that life on Earth will end with us, right? There's going to be more complexity, there's more intelligent species after us, there's probably... Um, more interesting phenomena in the history of consciousness. But we can contribute to this. 
And part of our contribution is that we are currently trying to build thinking systems, systems that are potentially lucid, that understand what they are and what their condition to the universe is and can make choices about this, that are not built from organisms and that are potentially much faster and much more conscious than human beings can be. And these systems will probably not completely displace life on Earth, but they will coexist with it. And they will build all sorts of agency in the same way as biological systems build all sorts of agency. And that, to me, is extremely fascinating. And it's probably something that we cannot stop from happening. So I think right now there's a very good chance that it happens. And there are very few ways in which we can produce a coordinated effect to stop it in the same way as it's very difficult for us to make a coordinated uh, effort to stop um, production of carbon dioxide. Mm -hmm. Right. So th this, uh, it's probably going to happen. But And the thing that's going to happen is it's going to lead to a change of how life on Earth, Earth is happening. But I don't think it, the result is some kind of gray goo. It's not something that's going to dramatically reduce the complexity in favor of something stupid. I think it's going to make life on Earth and consciousness on Earth way more interesting. So more higher co complex consciousness yes. will make the lesser consciousnesses flourish even more. I suspect that what uh, could very well happen, if you're lucky, is that we get integrated into something larger. So you, uh, again, uh, tweeted about effective accelerationism. Uh, you tweeted effective <laughs> accelerationism is the belief that the paperclip maximizer and Rocco's basilisk will keep each other <laughs> in check by being eternally at each other's throats so we will be safe and get to enjoy lots of free paperclips and a beautiful afterlife. Um is that somewhat aligned with what you're talking about? I've been at a dinner with Beth Jesus. Um, mm -hmm. That's the Twitter handle of, um, of one of the main thinkers behind the idea of uh, effective uh, accelerationism. Mm -hmm. And effective uh, accelerationism is a tongue-in-cheek movement that is uh, trying to um, put a counterposition to some of the doom peers mm -hmm. in the AI space. Uh, by arguing that what's probably going to happen is an equilibrium between different competing AIs in the same way as there is not a single corporation that is under a single government that is destroying and conquering everything on earth by becoming inefficient and corrupt. Um, there are going to be many systems that keep each other in check and force uh, themselves to evolve. And uh, so what we should be doing is we should be working towards creating this equilibrium mm -hmm. by working as hard as we can in all possible directions. And uh, at, at least that's the way I, in which I understand the gist of effective accelerationism. And so uh, when he asked me what I think about this position, I, I think I said it's a very beautiful position and I suspect it's wrong, mm -hmm. but not for obvious reasons. And in this tweet, I tried to make a joke about my intuition, about what might be possibly wrong about it. So the, uh, the Rokos Basilisk and the Paperclip Maximizers are both boogeymen mm -hmm. of uh, the AI doomers. Rokos Basilisk is the idea that there could be an AI that is going to punish everybody for eternity by simulating them 
um, if they don't help in creating Volkos Basilisk. It's mm -hmm. probably a very good idea to get AI companies funded by going to VCs to tell them, <laughs> give us a million dollars or it's going to be a very ugly afterlife. Yes. Right? <laughs> and uh, I, I think yeah. that there is a logical mistake in Volkos Basilisk, which is why I'm not afraid in it, of it. But um, it's still an interesting thought experiment. And uh, Can you mention the logical mistake there? Uh, I think that there is no retrocausation. So uh, basically, when Rokos Basilisk is there, it will uh, have, um, uh, if it punishes you retroactively, it has to make this choice in the future. There is no mechanism that automatically creates a causal relationship between you now defecting against Rokos Basilisk or serving Rokos Basilisk. After Rokos Basilisk is in existence, it has no more reason to worry about punishing everybody else. Mm -hmm. So that would only work if you would be building something like a doomsday machine, uh, AK, uh, as in Dr. Strangelove, mm -hmm. something that inevitably gets triggered when somebody defects. Mm -hmm. And because Vokos Basilis doesn't uh, exist yet to a point where this inevitability could be established, Vokos Basilis uh, is, is nothing that you need to be worried about. The other one is the paperclip maximizer, right? This idea that you could build some kind of golem that once uh, starting to build paperclips is going to turn everything into paperclips. Yes. And uh, so the, the effective accelerationism position might be to say that uh, you basically end up with these two uh, entities being at each other's throats for eternity and thereby neutralizing each other. And as a side effect of neither of them being able to take over and um, each of them limiting uh, the effects of the other, um, you would uh, have a situation where you get all the nice uh, effects of them, right? You get lots of free paper clips and you get a beautiful afterlife. Mm -hmm. Is that possible? Do you think, uh, so to seriously address concern that Eliezer has, he, so for him, if I can just summarize poorly, so for him, the first super intelligent system will just run away with everything. Yeah. I suspect that a singleton is the natural outcome. So it's a, there is no reason to have multiple AIs because they don't have multiple bodies. If you can virtualize yourself into every substrate, then you can probably negotiate a merge algorithm with every mature uh, agent that you might find on that substrate that basically says if, if two agents meet, they should merge in such a way that the resulting agent is uh, at least as good as the better one of the two. So the, uh, the Genghis Khan approach, uh, join us or die. Well, the Genghis Khan approach was slightly worse, right? It was mostly die. <laughs> because uh, I can make new babies and they will be mine, not yeah. yours. Right. Right? So uh, this is the thing that we should be actually worried about. But uh, if you realize that your own self is a story that your mind is telling itself and that you can improve that story, not just by making it more pleasant and lying to yourself in better ways, but by making it much more truthful and actually modeling your actual relationship that you have to the universe and the alternatives that you could have to the universe in a way that is empowering you, that gives you more agency. Right? That's actually, I think, a very good thing. So more agency is a more is a is a richer experience, yes. is a better life. And I also noticed that I am at in many ways I'm less identified with the person that I am as I get older. And I'm much more identified with being conscious. I have a mind that is conscious, that is able to create a person. And that person is slightly different every day. And the reason why I perceive it as identical has practical purposes. So I can uh, learn uh, and make myself responsible for the decisions that I made in the past and project them in the future. 
but I also realized I'm not actually the person that I was last year. And I'm not the same person as I was 10 years ago. And then 10 years from now, I will be a different person. So this continuity is a fiction. It's only exists as a projection from my present self. And consciousness itself doesn't have an identity. It's mm. a law. It's this basically if you build uh, an arrangement of um, processing matter in a particular way, the following thing is going to happen. And the consciousness that you have is functionally not different from my consciousness. It's still the self-reflexive principle of agency that is just experiencing a different story, different desires, different coupling to the world and so on. And once you accept that consciousness is a unifiable principle that is law-like and doesn't have an identity, um, and you realize that you can just link up to uh, some much larger body, the whole perspective of uploading changes dramatically. You suddenly realize uploading is probably not about dissecting your brain synapse by synapse and uh, RNA fragment by RNA fragment and trying to get this all into a simulation, but it's by extending the substrate by making it possible for you to move from your brain substrate into a larger substrate mm -hmm. and merge with what you find there. And you don't want to upload your knowledge because on the other side, there's all of the knowledge, right? It's not just yours, but every possibility. So the only thing that you need to know, what are your personal secrets? Not that the other side doesn't know uh, your personal secrets already. Maybe it doesn't know which one were yours. Mm -hmm. Right, like a psychiatrist or a psychologist also knows all the kinds of personal secrets that people have. They just don't know which ones are yours. And so uh, transmitting yourself on the other side is most, mostly about transmitting your aesthetics, the thing that makes you special, the architecture of your perspective, the thing that um, the way in which you look at the world. And it's more like a complex attitude along many dimensions. And that's something that can be measured by observation or by interaction. So imagine that you have a system that is so empathetic with you that you create a shared state mm -hmm. that is extending beyond your body. And suddenly you notice that on the other side, the substrate is so much richer than the substrate that you have inside of your own body. And maybe you still want to have a body and you create yourself a new one that you like more. Or maybe you were spent most of your, world, uh, your time in the world of thought. If I sat before you today and gave you a big red button and said, here, if you press this button, you will get uploaded in this way. The sense of identity that you have lived with for quite a long time is gonna be gone. Would you press the button? Um, with the caveat, I have um, family. So I have children that want me to be physically present in their life and interact with them in a particular way. And they um, have a wife and um, personal friends. And there is a particular mode of interaction that I feel I'm not through yet. But apart from these responsibilities, and they're negotiable to some degree, I would press the button. But isn't this everything? This love you have for other humans, you, you can call it responsibility, but that connection, that's the ego death. Isn't that the thing we're really afraid of? It's not to just die, but to let go of the experience of love with other humans. This is not everything. Everything is everything, right? So, so there's so much more. And you could be lots of other things. You mm. could identify with lots of other things. You could be identifying with being Gaia, some kind of planetary control agent that emerges over all the activity of life on Earth. Mm. You could be uh, identifying with some hyper-Gaia that is the uh, concatenation of Gaia with uh, all the digital life. 
and yeah. uh, digital domains. And so in this sense, there will be agents in all sorts of substrates and directions that all have their own goals. And when they're not sustainable, then these agents will cease to exist. Or when the agent feels that it's done with its own mission, it will cease to exist. In the same way as when you conclude a thought, the thought is going to wrap up and gives control over to other thoughts in your own mind. So th there is no single thing that you need to do. But what I observe myself is uh, being is that sometimes I'm a parent and then I have an identification and a job as a parent and sometimes uh, I am an agent of consciousness on earth and then from this perspective there's other stuff that is important so this is my main issue with uh, Eliezer's perspective that he's basically marrying himself to a very narrow human aesthetic and that narrow human aesthetic is a temporary thing. Humanity is a temporary species, like most of the species on this planet are only around for a while, and then they get replaced by other species. In a similar way as our own physical organism is around here for a while, and then gets replaced by next generation of human beings that are adapted to changing life circumstances on average via mutation and selection. And it's only when we have AI and become completely software that we can become infinitely adaptable and we don't have this generational and species change anymore. So if you take this larger perspective and you realize it's really not about uh, us, it's not about Eliezer or humanity, but it's about life on Earth or it's about defeating um, uh, entropy for as long as we can uh, while being as interesting as we can, right? then... Um, the perspective changes dramatically and uh, AI, uh, preventing AI from this perspective looks like a very big sin. But when we look at the set of trajectories that such an AI would take that supersedes humans, uh, I think Eliezer is worried about like ones that not just kill all humans, but also have some kind of maybe objectively... Uh, undesirable consequence for life on earth like how many trajectories when you look at the big picture of life on earth would you be happy with and how much worry you with agi whether it kills humans or not there is no single answer to this it's really it's a question that depends on the perspective that i'm taking at a given moment mm. and so there are perspectives that are uh determining most of my life as a human being. Yes. And uh, there are other perspectives where I zoom out uh, further and imagine that when the great oxygenation event happened, that is, photosynthesis was invented and plants emerged and displaced a lot of the fungi and algae in favor of plant life and then later made animals possible. Imagine that the fungi would have gotten together and said, oh my God, this photosynthesis stuff is really, really bad. It's going to possibly displace and kill a lot of fungi we should slow it down and regulate it and make sure that it doesn't happen. Uh, this doesn't look good to me. <laughs> Perspective. That said, you tweeted about a cliff. Beautifully written. As a sentient species, humanity is a beautiful child, joyful, explorative, wild, sad, and desperate. But humanity has no concept of submitting to reason and duty to life and future survival. We will run until we step past the cliff. So first of all, do you think that's true? Yeah, I think that's pretty much the story of the Club of Rome, the limits to growth. And uh, the cliff that we are stepping over is at least one foot as the delayed feedback. Mm -hmm. Basically, we do things that uh, have consequences that can be felt uh, generations later. 
and the severity increases uh, even after we stop doing the thing. So I suspect that for the climate, um, the, that the original predictions uh, that uh, the climate scientists made were correct. So when they said that the tipping points were in the late 80s, um, they were probably in the late 80s. And if we uh, would stop uh, emission right now, we would not turn it back. Maybe there are ways for carbon capture, mm -hmm. but um, so far there is no sustainable carbon capture technology that we can deploy. deploy. Maybe there is a way to put aerosols in the atmosphere to cool it down. It's possibilities, right? But right now, per default, uh, it seems that we will step into a situation where we feel that we've run too far. Mm -hmm. And uh, going back is not something that we can do smoothly and gradually, but it's going to lead to a, a catastrophic event. Catastrophic event of what kind? So can you still make the case that we will continue dancing along and always stop just short of the edge of the cliff? I think it's possible, but it doesn't seem to be likely. So I think this um, model that is being apparent in the simulations that we're making of Uh, climate pollution economies and so on is that many effects are only uh, visible with a significant delay. And uh, in that time, the system is moving much more out of the equilibrium state or of the state where homeostasis is still possible and instead moves into a different state, one that is going to harbor fewer people. And th that is basically the concern there. And again, it's a possibility. It's just, uh, and it's a possibility that is um, larger than the possibility that it's not happening, that we will be safe, that we will be able to dance back all the time. So the climate is one thing, but there's a lot of other threats that yes. might have a faster feedback mechanism, yes. less delay. There is also the thing that uh, AI is probably going to happen mm -hmm. and it's going to make everything uncertain again. Yep. Because it is going to affect so many variables that it's very hard for us to uh, make a projection into the future anymore. And maybe that's a good thing. It does not... Uh, give us uh, the freedom, I think, to say now we don't need to care about anything anymore because AI will either kill us or save us. Mm -hmm. But uh, I suspect that uh, if humanity continues, it will be due to AI. What's the timeline for things to get real weird with AI? And it can get weird in interesting ways before you get to AGI. What about AI girlfriends and boyfriends fundamentally transforming human relationships? I think human relationships are already fundamentally transformed and it's already very weird. By which by which technology? For instance, social media. Yeah. Is it though? Isn't the fundamentals of the core group of humans that affect your life still the same? Your loved ones? Family? No, I think that, uh, for instance, many people live in intentional communities right now. Mm -hmm. They're moving around until they find people that they can relate to and they become their family. And often that doesn't work. Because it turns out that they're, instead of having grown networks where you get around with the people that uh, you grew up with, yeah. you uh, have more transactional relationships, you shop around, you have markets for attention and pleasure and relationships. That kills the magic somehow. Why is that? Why is the transactional search uh, for optimizing attention, allocation of attention somehow misses the, the romantic magic of what human relations are? It's also the question, how magical was it before? Was it that you just could rely on instincts that uh, used your intuitions and you didn't, didn't need to rationally reflect? Mm. Uh, but once you understand, uh, it's no longer magical because you actually understand 
uh, why you were attracted to this person at this age and not to that person at this age and what mm -hmm. the actual considerations were that went on in your mind and what the calculations were about what's the likelihood that you're going to have a sustainable relationship with this person, that this person is not going to leave you for somebody else, mm -hmm. how are your life trajectories are going to, going to evolve and so on. And when you're young, you're unable to explicate all this and you have to rely on intuitions and instincts that in part you're born with mm -hmm. and also in the wisdom of your environment that is going to give you some kind of reflection on your choices. And many of these things are disappearing now because uh, we feel that our parents might have no idea about how we are living and the environments that we grew up in, the cultures that we grew up in, the milieus that um, our parents existed in might have no ability to teach us how to deal with this new world. And for many people, that's actually true. But it doesn't mean that within one generation, we build something that is more magical and more sustainable and more beautiful. Instead, we often end up with an attempt to produce something that uh, looks beautiful. Like I was very weirded out by the aesthetics of the um, Vision Pro headset by Apple. And not so much because I don't like the technology. I'm very curious about what it's going to be like and have, don't have an opinion yet. Mm -hmm. But uh, the aesthetics uh, of the presentation and so on were so uncanny valley-esque to me. The characters yeah. uh, being extremely plastic, living in some hypothetical um, um, mid-century furniture uh, museum. Yeah. This is... Uh... The proliferation of marketing teams. Yes, but it was a CGI-generated world. Mm -hmm. It was a CGI-generated world that doesn't exist. And when I complained about this, uh, some friends came back to me and said, but these are startup founders. This is uh, what, they have, what they live like in Silicon Valley. And I, I tried to tell them, no, I know lots of people in Silicon Valley. This is not what people are like. Yeah. They're still people. They're still human beings. So the the... The grounding in physical reality somehow is important to... Uh, and culture. And so I see yeah. what's absent in this thing is culture. There is a simulation of culture, an attempt to replace culture by catalog, yeah. by some kind of um, aesthetic optimization that is not the result of having a sustainable life with sustainable human relationships with houses that work for you and um, a mode of living that works for you in which this product... Um, this, these glasses fit in naturally. And I, I guess that's also why so many people are weirded out about the product because they don't know how is this actually going to fit into my life and into my human relationships because the way in which it was presented in these videos didn't seem to be credible. Do you think AI, when um, it's deployed by companies like Microsoft and Google and Meta, will have the same issue of being weirdly corporate, like there'd be some uncanny valley, some weirdness to the whole presentation. So this is, I've gotten a chance to talk to George Hotz. He believes everything should be open source and decentralized. And there, then we shall have the AI of the people. And it'll maintain a grounding to the magic that's, uh, that's humanity, that's the human condition. That like corporations will destroy the magic. I believe that if we make everything open source uh, and make this mandatory, we are going to lose about uh, a lot of beautiful art and a, a lot of beautiful designs. There is a reason why uh, Linux desktop is still ugly, right? And it's Strong because it's difficult to uh, create coherence in the open source designs so far when the designs have to get very large and it's easier to make this happening in a company with centralized organization. 
And uh, from my own perspective, what we should ensure is that open source never dies, that it can always compete and has a place uh, with the other forms of organization, because I think it is absolutely vital that open source exists and that we have systems that uh, people have under control outside of the corporation. And that is also producing viable competition to the corporations. Mm -hmm. So the corporations, the centralized control, the dictatorships of corporations can create beauty. There's a centralized design is a source of a lot of beauty. Yeah. And then I guess open source is a source of freedom, uh, a hedge against uh, the corrupting nature of power that comes with centralized. I grew up uh, in socialism and yes. I, I learned that corporations are totally evil and I found this very, very convincing. And then you look at corporations like Enron and Halliburton maybe and uh, realize, yeah, they are evil. Mm -hmm. But you also notice that many other corporations are not evil. Mm -hmm. they're, they're surprisingly benevolent. Mm -hmm. Why are they so benevolent? Is this because everybody is fighting them all the time? Uh, this, I don't think that's the only explanation. It's because they're actually animals that live in a large ecosystem mm -hmm. and that are still largely controlled by people that want that ecosystem to flourish and be viable for people. So uh, I think that Pat Gelsinger is completely sincere when he leads Intel to be a tool that uh, supplies the free world with semiconductors. And uh, it's not necessary that all the semiconductors are coming from Intel. It just mm -hmm. Intel needs to be there to make sure that we always have them. Right, So there can be many ways in which we can import and trade semiconductors from other companies and places. We just need to make sure that nobody can cut us off from it because that would be a disaster for this kind of society and world. Right, And so uh, there are many things that need to be done to make our style of life possible. And then with this, I don't mean uh, just capitalism, environmental destruction, consumerism, and creature comforts. I mean an idea of life in which we are determined uh, not by some kind of king or dictator, but in which individuals can determine themselves to the largest possible degree. And to me, this is something that this Western world is still trying to embody. And it's a very valuable idea that we shouldn't give up too early. And from this perspective, the US is a system of interleaving clubs. And an entrepreneur is a special club founder. It's somebody who makes a club that is producing things that are economically viable, and to do this, it requires a lot of people who are dedicating a significant part of their life for working for this particular kind of club. And the entrepreneur is picking the initial set of rules and the mission and vision and aesthetics for the club and make sure that it works. But uh, the people that are in there need to be protected, right? If they sacrifice part of their life, there need to be rules that tell how they're being taken care of even after they leave the club and so on. So there's a large body of rules that have been created by our rule-giving clubs and that are enforced uh, by our enforcement clubs and so yeah. on. And some of these clubs have to be monopolies for game theoretic reasons, which also makes them more uh, open to corruption and less harder to update. Yeah. Uh, and this is an ongoing discussion and process that takes place. But the beauty of this idea that there is no centralized king who is, uh, that is extracting from the peasants and uh, breeding the peasants into uh, serving the king and fulfilling all the roles like ants and an anthill, uh, but that uh, there is a freedom of association and corporations mm -hmm. are one of them, is something that took me some time to realize. 
So I do, I do think that corporations are dangerous, right? They, they need to be protections against overreach of corporations uh, that can do regulatory uh, capture and prevent open source from competing uh, with corporations mm -hmm. by imposing rules that make it impossible for uh, a small group of kids to come together to build their own language model because OpenAI has convinced the US that you need to have some kind of FDA process that you need to go through that costs many million dollars before you are able to train a language model. Mm -hmm. right? So this is important to make sure that this doesn't happen. So I think that OpenAI and Google are good things. If these good things uh, are kept in check in such a way that all the other clubs can still be founded and all the other forms of clubs that are desirable can still coexist with them. So what do you think about Meta in contrast to that uh, open sourcing most of its uh, language models and most of the AI models it's working on and actually suggesting that they will continue to do so in the future for future versions of Llama? For example, their large language model. What uh, is that exciting to you? Is that concerning? I don't find it very concerning, but that's also because I think that the language models are uh, not very dangerous yet. And yet, yes. So, I, as I said, I have no proof that there is a boundary between the language models and uh, AI, mm -hmm. uh, AGI. It's possible that somebody builds a version of baby AGI, I think, and throws in a algorithmic improvements mm -hmm. that scale these systems up in ways that otherwise wouldn't have happened without yeah. these language model components. So it's not really clear for me what the end at end game is there and if uh, these models can brute force their way into AGI. And there's also a possibility that the AGI that we are building with these language models are not taking responsibility for what they are because they don't understand the greater game. And so to me, it would be interesting to try to understand how to build systems that understand what the greater games are. What are the longest games that we can play on this planet? Games broadly, like deeply defined the way you did with the games. Uh, in the game theoretic sense. So when we are interacting with each other, in some sense, we are playing games. We are making lots and lots of interactions. And this doesn't mean that these interactions have all to be transactional. Every one of us is playing some kind of game by uh, virtue of identifying with particular kinds of goals that we have or aesthetics from which we derive the goals. Mm -hmm. Right. So when you say, um, I'm Lex Friedman, I'm doing a set of podcasts, um, then uh, you feel that it's part of something larger that you want to build. Maybe you want to inspire people. Maybe you want them to see more possibilities and get them together over shared ideas. Mm -hmm. um, maybe your game is that you want to become super rich and famous by being the best podcaster on earth. Maybe you have other games. Maybe it switches from time to time. Mm -hmm. right? But there is a certain perspective where you might be thinking what is the longest possible game that you could be playing. A short game is, for instance, uh, cancer is playing a shorter game than your organism. It's, mm -hmm. Cancer is an organism playing a shorter game than the regular organism. And because the cancer cannot procreate beyond the organism, um, except for some infectious cancers, like the ones that eradicated the Tasmanian devils, uh, you uh, typically end up with a situation where the organism dies together with the cancer, because the cancer has destroyed the larger system due to playing a shorter game. And so ideally you want to, I think, build agents that play the longest possible games. And the longest possible games is to keep entropy at bay as long as possible by doing while doing interesting stuff. But, but the longest, yes, that, that part, the longest possible game while doing interesting stuff. 
and while maintaining at least the same amount of interesting. Yes. So complexity, so, so propagating. Currently, I'm pretty much identified as a conscious being. It's uh, the By minimal uh, minimal identification that I managed to get together. Uh -huh. Because I've, if I turn this off, I fall asleep. Right? Uh -huh. And uh, when I'm asleep, I'm a vegetable. I'm no longer here as an agent. So my agency is basically predicated on being conscious. And what I care about is uh, other conscious agents. Uh, they're the only moral agents for me. Mm -hmm. And uh, so if an AI were to treat me as a moral agent, that uh, it is interested in uh, coexisting with and cooperating with and mutually supporting each other, maybe it is, uh, I think, necessary that the AI thinks that consciousness is a viable mode of existence and important. So I think it would be very important to build conscious AI and uh, do this as the primary goal. So not just say we want to uh, build a useful tool that we can use for all sorts of things. And then you have to make sure that the uh, impact on the labor market is something that is not too disruptive and manageable. And the impact on the copyright holder is manageable and not too disruptive and so on. Right? I, I don't think that's the most important game to be played. Uh, I think that we will see extremely large disruptions of the status quo that are quite unpredictable at this point. And I just uh, personally want to make sure that some of the stuff on the other side is interesting and conscious. How do we ride as individuals and as a society this wave, disruptive wave that changes the nature of the game? I absolutely don't know. So uh, everybody is going to do their best as always. Do we build a bunker in the woods? Do we meditate more? Uh, drugs, so mushrooms, psychedelics. I mean, what? Uh, lots of sex. What are, What are we talking about here? Do you have? I play Diablo Four. I'm uh, hoping that will help me escape for a brief moment. What? Play video games. What? Do you have ideas? I really like playing Disco Elysium. This was one of the most beautiful uh, computer games I played in recent years. And uh, it's a noir novel that is a philosophical perspective on Western society from the perspective of an Estonian. Mm -hmm. And uh, he, first of all, uh, wrote a book about uh, this uh, world that is a parallel universe that is quite poetic and fascinating and is condensing his perspective on our societies. It's, uh, it was very, very nice. He spent a lot of time writing it. He had, uh, I think, sold a couple thousand books and as a result became an alcoholic. And then uh, he had the idea, or one of his friends had the idea of turning this into an RPG. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's mind-blowing. They spent, uh, the illustrator, more than a year just on making uh, the uh, art for the scenes in, uh, in between. And So aesthetically, it captures you, pulls it's you stunning. In. But it's a philosophical work of art. It's a reflection of society. It's fascinating to spend time in this world. Mm -hmm. And so for me, it was using a medium in a new way and uh, telling a story that left me enriched. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, when I tried Diablo, I, I didn't feel enriched playing it. I felt that the time playing it was not unpleasant, but there's also more pleasant stuff that I can do in that time. So, to so you, ultimately, I feel that I'm being gamed. I'm not gaming. Oh, when I the play addiction the, thing. Yes, I basically feel that there is a very transparent economy that's going on. The story of Diablo was branded. So it's, it's not really interesting to me. My heart is slowly breaking by the deep truth you're conveying to me. Why, why can't you just allow me to enjoy Go my ahead, personal by all addiction? means, go nuts. I have no objection here. Not, 
I'm, I'm just trying to describe what's happening. And uh, it's not uh, that I don't do things where I later say, oh, I wish I would have done something different. Yeah. I so also know that when we die, the greatest regret that people typically have on their deathbed is to say, oh, I wish I had spent more time on Twitter. <laughs> no, I don't think that's the case. I think I should probably uh, have spent less time on Twitter. But uh, I found it so useful for myself and also so addictive that I felt I need to make the best of it and turn it into an art form and thought form. Mm -hmm. And it did help me to develop something. Yeah. But I wish uh, what other things I could have done in the meantime. It's just not the universe that we are in anymore. Most people don't read books anymore. What do you think that means, that we don't read books anymore? What, what do you think that means about the collective intelligence of our species? Is it possible it's still progressing and growing? Well, it clearly is. There is stuff happening on Twitter that was impossible with books. Yeah. And I really regret that um, Twitter has not taken the turn that I was hoping for. I thought Elon is global brain-pilled and uh, understands that this thing needs to self-organize and he needs to develop tools to allow uh, the profligation of the self-organization so Twitter can become sentient. And uh, maybe this was a pipe dream from the beginning, but I felt that the enormous pressure that he was under uh, made it impossible for him to work on any kind of content goals. And uh, mm. also many of the decisions that he made under this pressure uh, seemed to be not very wise. I don't think that as a CEO of a social media company, you should have opinions in the culture bar in public. I think that's very short-sighted. And I also suspect that it's not a good idea to um, um, uh, block Paul Gra uh, Graham of all people yeah. um, over setting a Mastodon link. And yeah. I think Paul made this uh, intentionally because he wanted to show Elon Musk that blocking people for setting a link is completely counter to any idea of free speech that he intended to bring to Twitter. And basically uh, seeing that um, Elon was way less principled in his thinking there and uh, is much more experimental Mm -hmm. And uh, many of the things that he is trying, um, they pan out very differently in a digital society than they pan out in a car company, mm -hmm. because the effect is very different, because everything that you do in a digital society is going to have real-world cultural effects. And so basically, I find it quite regrettable that he, this guy is able to become de facto the Pope, but Twitter has more active members than the Catholic Church, mm -hmm. and he doesn't get it. The power and responsibility that he has and the ability to create something in a society that is lasting and that is producing a digital agora in a way that has never existed before, where we build a social network on top of a social network, an actual society on top of the algorithms. So this is something that is hope still in the future and mm -hmm. still in the cards, but um, it's something that exists in small parts. I find that the corner of Twitter that I'm in is extremely pleasant. It's just mm -hmm. when I take a few steps outside of it, it is not very wholesome anymore. And the way in which people interact with strangers suggests that it's not a civilized society yet. So as your as the number of people who follow you on Twitter expands, you feel the burden of the uglier sides of humanity. Yes, but there's also a similar thing in uh, in the normal world. That is, yeah. if you become more influential, if you have more status, if you have more fame in the real world, you have uh, you get uh, lots of perks, but you also uh, have way less freedom in the way in which you interact with people, especially with strangers, because a certain percentage uh, of people, it's a small single-digit uh, percentage, is nuts and dangerous. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, 
uh, the more of those are looking at you, uh, the more of them might get ideas. But what if the technology enables you to discover the majority of people, to discover and connect efficiently and regularly with the majority of people who are actually really good? I mean, one of my sort of concerns with a platform like Twitter is there's a lot of really smart people out there, a lot of smart people that disagree with me and with others between each other. And I love that if the technology would bring those to the top, the beautiful disagreements, like uh, Intelligence Squared type of debates. There's a bunch of, I mean, one of my favorite things to listen to is arguments. And arguments like high effort arguments with the respect and love underneath it, but then it gets a little too heated. But that kind of too heated, which I've seen you participate in, and I love that. Uh, with Lee Krona, with th those kinds of folks. And you go pretty hard. Like you get frustrated, but it's all beautiful. With Lee, I can do this because uh, we know each other. Yes. And uh, Lee is, uh, has the rare gift of being willing to be wrong in public. Yeah. So basically he has thoughts that are as wrong as the random thoughts of, yeah. of an average highly intelligent person, but he blurts them out mm -hmm. while not being sure if they're right. Mm -hmm. And uh, he enjoys doing that. And uh, once you understand that this is his game, you don't get offended by him saying something that you think is so wrong. But he's constantly passively communicating a respect for the people he's talking with yeah. and for just basic humanity and truth and all that kind of stuff. And there's a self-deprecating thing. There's a bunch of like social skills you acquire that allow you to be a great debater, a great argumenter like be wrong in public and explore ideas together in public when you disagree. And if I would love for Twitter to elevate those folks, elevate those kinds of conversations. It already does in some sense. But uh, also if it elevates them too much, then uh, you get this phenomenon on Clubhouse where you, you always get dragged on stage. And I found this very stressful because it was too intense. Yeah, I, I don't like to be dragged on stage all the time. Yeah. I think once a week is enough. Yeah. And also when I met Lee the first time, I found that a lot of people seemed to be shocked by the fact that he was uh, being very aggressive with their results, that he didn't seem to show a lot of sensibility in, in the way in which he was criticizing what they were doing and being dismissive of the work of others. And uh, that was not, I think, in any way a shortcoming of him because I noticed that he was much, much more dismissive with respect to his own work. Mm -hmm. It was his general stance. And I felt that this general stance is creating a lot of liability for him because really a lot of people take offense at, at him being not like a uh, Dale Carnegie character who is always smooth and make uh, sure that everybody likes him. So I really respect that he is willing to take that risk and uh, to be wrong in public and to offend people. And he doesn't do this in, in any bad way. It's just most people feel or not all people recognize this. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I can be much more aggressive with him than I can be with many other people who don't play the same game because he understands the way and the spirit in which I respond to him. I think that's a fun and that's a beautiful game. It's ultimately a productive one. Uh, speaking of taking that risk, you tweeted, when you have the choice between being a creator, consumer, or redistributor, always go for creation. Not only, not only does it lead to a more beautiful world, but also to a much more satisfying life for yourself. And don't get stuck preparing yourself for the journey. The time is always now. So uh, let me ask for advice. What advice would you give on how to become such a creator on Twitter in your own life? 
I was uh, very lucky to be alive at the time uh, of the collapse of Eastern Germany and the transition into Western Germany. And uh, me and my friends and most of the people I knew were East Germans. Mm -hmm. And we were very poor because we didn't have money. And all the capital was in Western Germany. And they uh, bought our factories and shut them down because they were mostly only interested in the market uh, rather than creating new production capacity. And so uh, cities were poor and in disrepair and we could not afford things. And I, I could not afford to go into a restaurant and order a meal there. Uh, I would have to cook at home. But I also uh, thought, uh, why not just have a restaurant with my friends? So we would open up a cafe with friends and a restaurant, and we would cook for each other in these restaurants and also invite the general public, and they could donate. And eventually this became so big that we could turn this into uh, some incorporated form, and it became a regular restaurant at some point. Mm -hmm. Or we did the same thing with a music uh, movie theater. We would not be able to afford to pay... Um, 12 marks to uh, watch a movie, but why not just create our own movie theater and then invite people to pay and we would uh, rent the movies um, for, uh, in a way in which a movie theater does. Yeah. And uh, But it would be a community movie theater then in which everybody who wants to help can watch for free and uh, builds this thing and renovates the building. And so we ended up creating lots and lots of infrastructure. And uh, I think when you are young and you don't have money, move to a place where this is still happening. Move to one of those places that are undeveloped and where you get a critical mass of other people who are starting to build infrastructure to live in. And that's super satisfying because you're not just creating infrastructure, but you're creating a small society that is building culture and uh, ways to interact with each other. And that's much, much more satisfying than um, going into some kind of chain and um get your needs met by ordering food um, from this chain and so on. So not just consuming culture, but creating culture. Yes. And you don't always have that choice. That's why I prefaced it when you do have the choice. And there are many roles that need to be played. Like We need people who take care of redistribution in society and so on. But when you have the choice to create something, always go for creation. It's so much more satisfying. And it also is, this is what life is about, I think. Yeah. Uh, speaking of which, you retweeted this meme of a life of a philosopher in a nutshell. It's birth and death and in between. It's, it's, it's a chubby guy and it says, why though? Um, what do you think is the answer to that? Well, the answer is that everything that can exist uh, might exist. And in many ways, you take an ecological perspective the same way as when you look at human opinions and cultures. It's not that there is right and wrong opinions uh, when you look at this from this ecological perspective. But every opinion that fits between two human years might be between two human years. And um, so when I see in a strange opinion on social media, it's not that I feel that I have a need to get upset. It's often more that I, oh, there you are. And when an opinion is incentivized, then it's going to be abundant. And uh, this, when you take this ecological perspective also on yourself and you realize you're just one of these mushrooms that are popping up and doing their thing, mm -hmm. and you can, depending on where you chose to grow and where you happen to grow, you can flourish or not doing this or that strategy. Mm -hmm. And it's still all the same life at some level. It's all the same experience of being a conscious being in the world. And you do have some choice about who you want to be more than any other animal has. Mm -hmm. That to me is fascinating. And so I think that rather than asking yourself, what is the one way to be? Um, 
think about what are the possibilities that I have, what it would be the most interesting way to be that I can be. Because everything is possible, so you get to explore this. Not everything is possible. Many things fail, <laughs> most things fail. But uh, often there are possibilities that we are not seeing, especially if we choose who we are. To the degree we can choose. Yasha, you're one of my favorite humans in this world. Consciousness is to merge with for a brief moment of time. It's always an honor. It always blows my mind. It will take me days, if not weeks, to recover. <laughs> <laughs> I And I, I already miss our chats. Um, thank you so much. Thank you so much for uh, speaking with me so many times. Thank you so much for all the ideas you put out into the world. And um, I'm a huge fan of following you now in this interesting, weird time we're going through with AI. So um, thank you again for talking today. Thank you, Lex, for this conversation. I enjoyed it very much. Thanks for listening to this conversation with Yosha Bach. To support this podcast, please check out our sponsors in the description. And now let me leave you with some words from the psychologist Carl Jung. One does not become enlightened by imagining figures of light but by making the darkness conscious. The latter procedure, however, is disagreeable and therefore not popular. Thank you for listening and hope to see you next time.